Train Shuffling is brought to you by Midgard Hobbies and Games, our friendly local game store. Next, we'd like to thank Luxury Playstyle, maker of fine metal gaming accessories. Visit LuxPlay.com and use promo code LUXINFORMANT for 15% off. Next, we'd like to thank our wonderful patrons for your support. Your contributions help improve our live streams and bring you better content. If you'd like to buy a few shares of Train Shuffling, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash meekinformant. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Train Shuffling. I'm Johnny Hollander. I'm Eric Hyden. And this is episode 21. We can, uh, we're, we're legal to drink in America now. Oh yeah. Let's go get drunk. All right. See you everyone. That's the whole episode. We're good at that joke. Um, so, hey, we're back. We're, we're recording on the 4th of April. Um, I, I have some news for the news section because I forgot to write it down. I'll, I'll, well, I guess we won't do it yet. We won't do that news. All right. <laughs> want to start with receiving starting capital? Yes. All right. So first of all, we want to thank our Robber Baron patrons, Joe S, Joe L, and Mason R. We appreciate your support as always. We also forgot that we said that we would specifically thank you, your your specific class of patrons, uh, as as part of the appreciation. So we want to just say it again. Thanks, Joe S, Joel, and Mason R, as sort of back payment for uh, debts debts owed. Sorry, sorry, guys. We also uh, have we also new- have. We also have some new patrons. Uh, since last episode, we got two new patrons, Cameron and Vincent. Welcome and thank you. I really appreciate some new faces. Cameron, uh, actually, both of these guys, I think, Vincent, um, I met in the 1846 tournament playing in one of our games, and he emailed me, and we had a little conversation. And a, and a couple of months later, he joined the patron. And Cameron said that he is a new player and his group is new. And uh, it was fun to hear about them. They're diving into, I think, 18 Chesapeake was their their starting game. And they've played it a handful of times now. And they're looking at what their next few titles are going to be. And so that's cool. It's cool to get some new blood. Well, and uh, in addition to welcome to Train Shuffling, welcome to the world of 18XX. Hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, don't get uh, crusty and old, gray-haired. I don't know. <laughs> Are they calling us old? No, now? I'm just picturing a robber baron <laughs> with like a top hat. That was a uh, Mission to Zix uh, reference. Oh, that's very... That, I wonder what the crossover is of... of uh, yeah, if you haven't listened to Mission to Zix, highly recommended. Um, it's, it's a comedy podcast. You want to move on to the private yep. auction? Private auction. Housekeeping and corrections. We're not perfect. We have a correction. Uh, but it wasn't a mistake at the time. We just changed our minds. Yes. So uh, we we had a, a bonus episode where we... Uh, sorry, I just realized that I'm, I'm doing my gesturing thing. I just stuck my hand out to like... <laughs> I don't know. Call the masses. Um, we had a bonus episode where we just talked about Johnny's new recording space and how we're excited about our new microphones that we're finally getting to pick up um we we mentioned sure sm7b's as the microphones that we were going to be getting we had a last minute decision to change to the electro voice re20 and johnny's recording on it right now can you tell i don't know why i just got got all tongue-tied when on the spot to uh 
display the magnificence of this new mic. I feel a little self-conscious now that I'm not going to sound as good as people are expecting me to. I think you sound wonderful, <laughs> and I think that you shouldn't be self-conscious. So yeah, we we got, uh, and actually Eric's is on the it, way, no, or did it arrive, but you're just waiting on it's the... It's on the shelf over there, but I can't use it yet, because it doesn't, I don't have an XLR cable or an audio interface. Those are shipping on, actually, tomorrow. Nice. And my um, my mount, my shock mount, will be here. Yeah, Johnny's microphone right now is precariously <laughs> dangling on the end of, like, it's not attached to anything, it's just hooked over something, and don't bump that thing, man. Well, I have a shock, I've got... Well, that's true. It would just absorb the shock if it landed. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it is uh, quite precarious. I used the the little um, whatever the thing you screw that you're supposed to screw a mic onto as a little stop from falling off the end. The male end of the bolt thing. Good radio. So (laughs) yeah, and uh, and so for a uh, for anybody interested for the mixer. Instead of getting two new mixers, we realized that, oh, I just bumped it. Could you I tell? I could not hear a thing, but but maybe oh. when you play back. That's shock mount, man. Uh, yeah. So uh, so I'm actually using the same mixer that we use for our live streams. And uh, Eric's got, the reason he can't use his new mic is he's waiting on his smaller uh, two-mic audio interface. The Motu That should M2. be arriving some point in the near future. It's uh, delayed shipping because of passover actually yeah. but anyways yeah new mics yay super yay awesome and actually let's just i just want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who supported us through our patron uh we wouldn't be able to do this without you guys here we're um we're, we're using the patron money to spend on these microphones and hopefully you know by getting them, it sounds a little bit better. If you don't notice it, sorry, I guess, but it's been really interesting for us, and um, and we've been spending a lot of energy on that. So hopefully, it's it's worthwhile. But but we yeah. And in addition to, sorry, yeah, we're just we're really grateful for everybody. Yeah. So let's move on to the initial stock round to actual train things. Uh, we had a question from last episode. The question was kind of a cop out, I guess, maybe a little bit, but we're interested. We're not even going to discuss it at length here, but we did ask what um, what game do you want us to talk about? What do you want to most hear on a future podcast episode? And we got some feedback, just a little bit, not too much. Um, so if you had meant to write to us or, or let us know, please do so. We're still interested. Um, but we mostly heard uh, 1817 and 1822 were two titles that people wanted to hear about more in depth. Uh, especially as far as like strategy guides. Now we won't be able to provide any useful strategy on 1817. <laughs> um, well, we actually, we could probably get somebody uh, to to join us as a special guest. We have a few patrons that are very into 1817 and I'm sure would love the opportunity to talk at length about their favorite game. Yeah. Something I've been kind of mulling over in my head for a while. And I've mentioned it, I think a couple of times um, is that I would like to, take advantage of our podcast and position uh where we have people who know these games and want us to be you know want us to get interested um and try and do like a live stream or even walking through a game on a podcast potentially with one of the people who are really really excited about 1817 and have and just be able to bounce questions off them because i played an 1817 async game and 
like 50 to 80% of it was completely over my head. And every time I had a decision to make, I kind of had, I was looking at people to my left and right going, what are we doing? Like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, do I take loans or short, can I short stuff? I, I, I didn't even have all the rules solid. So half of it was like, played this asynchronously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was through dot games. The rules were implemented. I couldn't make mistakes, but it was not, not a good first time experience. I want to go through it live. Even if I only get through a couple of ORs, it'd be nice to do that maybe on stream and be able to, ask questions like, okay, well, what are my options now? Why would I think about doing this versus that and have someone more experienced giving feedback and then we could actually play it more? Yeah, that'd be cool. I I played it synchronously a while back, three-player game, and I just, I, I didn't have the problem of, I didn't ask a lot of what should I do, but instead I just played as passive of a game as I could. I, you know, I didn't, didn't do a lot of, uh, I didn't pull a lot of the levers. I just tried to make sure I wasn't taking on too much debt and, uh, you know, I paid my loans back quickly and I merged when it seemed, or, uh, I don't know if it was merging or growing the companies into. You can acquire other other companies. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever the term is going from a two share to a five share to a 10 share, you know, I did it when my gut told me it, it might be time to do it, but I, I played a very, vanilla e yes yeah. i think that's just <laughs> growing up what most people call it i think in the game it might be converting okay. or something but yeah uh yeah so yeah. I, I would definitely like to do do as you suggest because um I, I would definitely like to be able to learn how to play well i have a great deal of interest in that game um but i i am still a bit intimidated by it so yeah we both have copies of yeah. it and uh, i've got 18 usa coming as well yep so it's on the horizon, I think. Get us yep. a little bit out of our operational shoes and into something slightly more uncomfortable, which is sometimes good. So let's move on to laying track. We got some news. You want to kick off the news? Uh, yeah. So first up, uh, Brennan Cherimato, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong, of Seahorse Laser Design is publishing 1856 on his Etsy store. Uh, not sure when that's going to be available, uh, but it is going to have some redesigned graphics by Francesco Maya. Also, apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. That that game has been you know printed in the past by Mayfair, um, and if you're unfamiliar, it, it's been out of print for a long time. I think they printed like way too many, and they couldn't sell them, and then all of a sudden people liked it and couldn't get a copy once it was scarce. Yeah, um, and I think way too many was like a thousand copies or something, something small for most yeah. genres. <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah, it's, I, I actually, um, I mean, I got a copy long after it was out of print for a reasonable price. So there, there definitely were more copies than people wanted floating around. Right. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, there was some news. Uh, Mercury games is, this is an interesting one. It's, it's caused a little bit of buzz. Mercury Games announced via Heavy Cardboard a um, a new product that they're going to be potentially releasing. They're going to kickstart it. Uh, don't know exactly when. Now I'm forgetting the dates. It's in the upcoming months. Um, 18 cash and 18 shares, which are... At first, I thought they were going to be a game or something. I was sort of excited by that idea. 
But 18 Cash is their answer to custom poker chips for 18xx games. They have denominations like a $67, or actually there's no denomination on it, I don't think. Is there? Can't remember. Dollars? Don't remember. I'm actually trying uh, to pull it up now. They, they have a denomination for 67, um, 20s, not 25s, and things like that. Um, which if, you know, they're going to be expensive, but per chip, but if you're into the way they look, then great. Check that out. Uh, they're also doing 18 shares, which I think is the more controversial thing. And, um, I'm, I'm very skeptical about it. Uh, so 18 shares is they are trying to basically make oversized, uh, giant, not, are they, they're ceramic. I think they're, Yeah. I think they're ceramic, ceramic poker chips. It's, it's a, sta- a standard, a standard poker chip material. Yeah. I don't know which one to replace shares in games. So they're making like a set per company. So the uh, B and O or the uh, Grand Trunk will get a set of poker chips. There are nine poker chips. One's a president's share for twenty percent, and then um, you know the other eight shares for ten percent shares, except for a couple of weird exceptions like the the, the National in fifty six. And you buy these, and I, hypothetically you can pick and choose what companies are in a game and bring them around and play with these fancy shares um, that are like big, big old poker chips. Uh, yeah. The main question for me, the main doubt for me is the price. They're just real expensive and I don't, I've never had a problem with, with paper money, paper shares. So I don't know. So if you're into it. I, I don't have as much of a problem with the price. I mean, I think it, I think it's a, very expensive price, but everybody values things differently. And um, for me, I, I think the bigger problem is how they're not more functional. I, yeah, I agree with shares. that. I don't think that they're more functional necessarily or at all. Maybe I think I hard to disagree. I think, they're, I think they're actually less functional, yeah. if anything. Uh, I, I just have a lot of doubt that they're going to make uh, reading things across the table that they're not going to make things harder to read across the table. Um, so in addition, you know, on top of them being very expensive to actually reduce the functionality of the components, uh, to me, that, that just seems like a, I don't think I would want to play with them. If, uh, even if somebody came over excited about having just purchased them, I'd probably say, no, let's use the paper ones. (laughs) They'd be so (laughs) mad. Um, they would be so mad. Yeah. I don't know that they're going to be like less functional to the point where it's like going to annoy me. Um, and again, I, you know, of course we haven't played with them, so I guess we're, we're just shooting from, from our hip here, what we think they will be like, but I have never looked across the table and been like, oh, I can't tell what shares that person has in that company. It's like, it's, it's very easy. To, it's so the thing that's easy. The reason that I think it's going to be harder, I, I think when you look across a table and I know different games do it differently and some are actually easier to read across the table than others but when you can see the circle logos and you can count those up very easily across the table or we have a convention that that we've picked up from the new england crew of stacking all of the shares on top of each other when you have 60 percent you know when you're at you're max mad. or whatever it is for that game when you're maxed out we have a very easy time looking across the table and parsing that you know Eric's got 50% of this company, it's possible to, or 40% of this company, it's possible to go steal it from or whatever. I think shares are going to be harder to see across the table and count, and it's going to be more obvious when somebody is trying to to look across and be like, how high is that stack? And I think that's actually going to not only be 
frustrating to try to figure out, but it's going to give things away like, oh, why is Johnny looking at my stack of uh, BNO chips trying to figure out how many I have? And it's going to actually give away strategy mm. for potential moves. So, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll be curious to watch that Kickstarter. I'm not going to be personally supporting it. I already have a poker set of poker chips that I love, and so does Johnny. And obviously, we're not going to, you know, we don't, we're not interested in the shares. But uh, I'll be curious to see if it's successful or not. And if uh, if someone around here picks them up, what they're like. So they're a pretty thing, though. They're very pretty. Yeah. I think as a, a collector's item or something, you know, if, if there was a set of you know, one for each company or something like that. I think that'd be kind of a neat, a neat yeah. thing. And I'd consider buying a set of those. Um, but to buy a set for every company of every game that I have for thousands of dollars. Ooh, so much. No, thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then uh, next bit of news, uh, there was, there's a BGG thread right now ongoing. I don't know exactly when it ends, but Scott Peterson of All Board Games has a poll up for 1849 um, two. The uh, Tale of Two Sicilies. So his expansion map um, for 1849. And he's asking whether or not you would like it as a standalone game for a higher price, about $80, or a, an expansion for about 40 Assuming you already have 1849, you need that to play. Um, currently, it's, it's leaning towards the uh, expansion side. Just yeah, letting people quite, know about that. Quite heavily. Yeah, it's like 60-something percent, right? Almost twice, yeah, almost twice the amount yep. of votes for uh, expansion. Yep. Uh, so we also have a new 18xx podcast. Yeah, it's actually been going on for a little while, but I, I haven't listened to it until... I've listened to a bit of it um, until now, just because it wasn't in my normal podcast feed. But the guys over at Dads on a Map uh, have started a a. 18xx specific podcast within their feed called the choo choo crew and i've been listening to that the last few days and have been enjoying it they're definitely more financial oriented than than we are so um check that out if you're a fan of like 1830 or 1828 or 32 those games um they do like a live auction on their podcast which is interesting to to hear because i i'm i'm notoriously bad at the waterfall auction stuff. So it's interesting to hear a thought process uh, as they go through that. Okay. Um, so a couple other quick things. Um, Doc Games has implemented some new games since last time. We're not going to go through the whole list like last time exhaustively, but they did add two player CZ, Heartspawn, 18FL, 1822, and it's uh, regional variants, MRS and NRS. So that's exciting. And I'm currently playing a two-player game of CZ with Len right now. He messaged me yesterday or two days ago, two days ago, and was like, hey, you want to play two-player? I was like, sure. Started that up. And uh, yeah, I've played through one full game of 22 plus. 22 plus is on there as well. I got totally hammered. But uh, What's 22 plus? It's 22 with like tons of minors uh, or tons of... I don't know exactly what the the difference is. It's basically, like lots more of the uh, the private companies and miners. You don't remove as much or something. I should. Is it the full? Is it the full length game oh, or is it a shorter? No, it's scenario, full length, like the regionals. Um, it's full length, okay. but with just everything. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah. 
I think that's all we have for news. That uh, is all we have. Play some tokens. Yeah. Sorry, I'm looking up the <laughs> the 22 thing. Oh. 22 plus six more six more miners three more privates the privates are categorized into blue dark gray and gold stacks which are i guess it's different than in the base game it's strange because um i've never played this physically in front of me so i i have a big knowledge gap on what like what what are the cards what do they mean by colors on cards and stuff because i've never seen the components before I've only ever played electronically yeah. since COVID, so it's a, it's a little odd. Yeah, it is hard to play when you have never seen the game in yeah, person. It makes a difference. The graphics don't always, yeah, the graphics aren't always represented uh, exactly as they are in person, as clearly as they are in, in person. Yep. So, all right, you ready to lay some tokens? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so this is where we talk about uh, titles of interest or what we've been playing. Uh, we decided that we're going to, rather than list all the games we play, we're going to start just picking one and talking about that. Uh, so I actually, as most of you that, that listen to our show know, I don't play a lot of online 18xx. So I'm in one game right now. It's 1861. And we just broke. We triggered actually, the end game. Well, we just, we just, yeah, we triggered the end game. We went from, uh, I think we went through like three ranks of trains in one OR. Uh, and it's, it's been a good game. I mean, there's, there haven't been any like moments that have stood out it, as like incredible things that have happened. Like, um, but it, I mean, it's, it's been fun. Uh, this is there, there, you know, there weren't a lot of, uh, nobody accidentally had something absorbed by the national cause they didn't plan ahead. Uh, there's, you know, nobody had anything dumped on them or anything. It, it's, it's been a very straightforward play, but it's been interesting and there's, everybody's very close. So there's been, you know, every decision matters and, and I don't know who's going to win. It's hard to tell right now. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think of it? I mean, you're in the same game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm in the same game. Uh, it is definitely, I feel like this is one that is very clearly, if you want to stick a black and white label on something, this is an operational game all the way. Um, because like you said, I don't know, maybe, am I making you mad by, by labeling it? Cause you're like a, you know, I don't, I don't want these labels to be. Yeah. I'm so mad. Can't you see them? Yeah. Green? Um, so, big? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like I heard someone say they played this recently and they never, like nobody ever sold a share. And, um, that wasn't the case in our game. You, you did some maneuvering, uh, to get in better financial position, but it was like essentially trying to get the most clean living, like invest all my cash. Right. Yeah. Well, so Basically, what happened was you you bought the only share I could afford without selling shares, so I sold I sold two shares to get three, uh, and they were slightly less valuable shares. And I, but I think it was worth having you know an extra share at the end um, rather than having a hundred and fifty bucks that I couldn't spend on something. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. Um, that was the only reason I sold the share. I like the map in this game a little bit better than sixty seven um, because it's. It seems a bit more dynamic, or maybe there's just more possible ways for the the web of all the different track to entangle and move around itself. And I think what I like about the map is the the fixed locations of the companies, uh, whereas in, in 67, 
I, I think the open map has its its pros and cons, but it just feels like there's um the open map meaning that the fact that you're not your miners are not tied to a specific location. Yeah. 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 I I, I like this yeah, game. I, I think I like that. It better. is uh I think I do like it based on one play a little bit better than sixty seven, but they're very similar. Um they're good games. I for yeah. It's definitely not a, a stock trashing thing. It's it's a run well plan for that good end game run kind of kind of game, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think um my my feeling on it is that it's an okay game. Like I have fun I had fun playing yeah. it. I'd play it again. Um I don't know that I would suggest it if we were like, what should we play tonight? Yeah. I think it's a pretty average game uh for me. Cool. So that's 61. I think there's a oh. lot of, I, I do think that, you know, I, I say, I say that on one hand, but on the other hand, I, I really like the idea of the national triggering immediately and the potential for you to get caught with your pants down and have a minor just go poof, not get paid, you know, not, not what well, you get paid out for, but you could lose all the money in the treasury if you, if you hadn't planned to loot it. But I think that maybe it's a little, maybe once you have a few games under your belt, that it might be a little bit too easy to plan around that. So I don't know. I, it's hard to say having only played it one and a half times, but I'm, I'm curious if people with experience ever find themselves in that situation or if it just becomes too predictable when that is going to trigger. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I wasn't watching super hard everybody else's positions in this game for like, when are we going to, when is it going to go? Um, so I thought it was very predictable because, uh, the only, the, there were, and, and maybe this was just the nature of this one play, but everybody that could afford, there were only like two companies that could afford to buy fours that also had space for them. So it was, mm. it was very obvious who was going to break the force. Yeah. There really wasn't, wasn't any question about it. Yeah, I it. guess I just didn't do the critical thinking. Like to, let me look at the, look, I didn't really look at the positions too, too critically. Um, and in person, I, I, it might not have been as easy, but with the spreadsheet, yeah, it was, it was a lot easier at a glance to just see, oh, here are the only two companies that can do it. Right. So um, what I was going to say is the major points of excitement in this game, I think, are, are potentially getting caught with your pants down. Um, because the rusting events in this are for that particular thing for nationalizations of the miners is very different than most other games. And so your first play, if you're not like reminded of the rule, that's a bad, bad time, but also is kind of fun where it's like when the first four is bought and all you had a twos and a minor, it's gone and you don't get a chance. Even if you had like $300 in it somehow, you're not going to be able to buy the train because it's gone. It is the rule. You're, you're, it's gone. So that can be kind of interesting. And I think that for similar to the bankruptcy discussion we had recently, the the more experienced players will decide, I mean, A, it's not necessarily bad to to get paid back. And B, they might want to just push push it and see how much they can get out of it before they go poof and decide, you know, that one's my we're gonna put that one up for sale essentially to the to the national and the other ones I'm gonna turn that one, I'm gonna convert that one into my my good company later or something. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I let two companies go away intentionally. Um, Nick, who last time I checked was in the lead. I, I don't know if he's, it was a slim lead, so I don't know if he's going to win the game, but he's obviously doing well. And I think he Nick. let at least two, if not more, 
Yeah. He, he let at least two, if not more companies uh, get absorbed by the, the national. So it's definitely not a bad thing as long as you are preparing the companies for it. I think I'm looking at the avatar. This is Nick is red. I ghost. red. I ghost. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Stone lean. Uh, yeah. So that's 61. Um, perfectly enjoyable time. Uh, I, I recently played 1830 a couple times. Um, so I'm going to briefly chat about that. It's been a bit, we, we played two games and with the same group of people. And I would say I can't speak for one of the players, Tom, but the other players are not, they're not 1830s players. Uh, it was Len, me, Mike A, who was essentially his first play of 1830, I think, and Tom. And I think Tom is probably the most experienced. I, I don't, I'm not sure about Len. Um, and the first game that we played, we bankrupted in OR4, somewhat 4.2, I think. Um, and I don't remember the specific details about that, but that was a fun bang. Was it a manufacturing no. bankruptcy or? Nope. Um, and I, yeah, I don't remember. I didn't do tie. I did that. Oh, there was a good story about this. Let me let me just look really quick and I'll go back to it because there was actually a good quickly. Oh, right. Right. So um I opened did I talk about this last time? I opened the CPR intending to suitcase it. Mike had already laid yes, it. Yes, okay. you did. All right. So we can edit this, but I will say the first one we bankrupted in 4.2, I actually talked about it on the last podcast where I tried to suitcase a company um, without realizing it wasn't a suitcase. And then we played a repeat with the same group and it went all the way to calling it, actually. We, we called it and I suggested it, which is weird for me, but we got to a position and where it was literally impossible for anyone to beat Mike. Mike had one company with one five train in it. He's running the B&M. And it was way up in the stock market. He had four, let's see, the net worths, when we called it, it was 45.23 for him to my 2091, Tom's 2084, and uh, Len's 1958. So he had more than doubled any of our net worths, and he just had shares in all the companies, basically. Um, and like diesels were broken. There was no more force train buys to happen it was literally impossible for someone to beat him so we we actually called the game and then i regretted it later <laughs> i was like why do we call that we should have just played the last it was async it didn't matter like we should have just played the stupid game out <laughs> <laughs> but it, the bank still had eight thousand dollars in it so i mean that you know like just take turns until it's done but but it did i was like okay um it's done now. And oh, I remember kind of being annoyed at this game in particular because Mike had the lead and I got a share advantage over him and actually crept up ahead of him. Um, and I had invested in Tom's, I think Tom's company with like over a couple of shares or no, no, no. I had companies that had fours in them. I had a bunch of four trains and I was like, well, the only person who can hurt me now is a person who Tom was in third place, I think. And was like, well, if he buys a diesel out of pocket and, and falls even further back, 
then I will be ruined. But why would he do that? He's not going to be winning. So why, why he won't do that? And I was like, sure, he wouldn't do that. And then he did. And he, he said later, well, I was trying to play to drag you down so I could be second or third instead of last or whatever it was. And so we were playing different games. And that was one of those stupid, the whole argument about the whole incoherent, incoherent last player thing, I think a little bit, not, not quite. It was more like he and I were playing two different games. Like we were playing under two different agreements, but we had never said them. Um, and so right. after that happened, I was a little salty and I was like, okay, well, we're done. <laughs> Mike's going to win. Let's just call it. But Yeah. This actually came out. Actually, we might've talked about this in a previous episode, but it, there was a whole discussion on, on Twitter about the t-shirt and well, what is a agent, what is an agent of chaos and what is that referring to? And, uh, somebody was saying that, well, clearly the right way to play is to try to get the highest percentage of cash as the eventual winner. Yep. This is our discord by the way. No, no, this was on, uh, this was on oh, Twitter. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I, highly disagree that that is the definitive right way because I don't think that's any more right than trying to place as high as you can. Yep. Uh, I mean, the only victory condition defined by the rules is whoever has the most money. Right. So any other, any, any second, third, fourth place, any other goal that you have in the game is completely I arbitrary. I remember the Twitter discussion. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I really don't think that that's correct. And I, I think Tom was perfectly justified sure. in going for second place. But what I do think is that it's wise knowing that some people play for second and some people play for a percentage of the eventual winner's cash to discuss it ahead of time and agree how your group is going to play. Before you start, uh, ideally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's 1830. <laughs> uh, yeah, so for our main topic, we're going to run trains. Uh, with an interview with Jonathan Cox from John Gets Games. He's been exploring uh, Cube Rails games and a little bit of 18xx more and more and has been talking about it on his YouTube channel. Um, so we decided that we would have him on and see what he's, what's gotten him so interested. So have a listen to the interview and we'll be back after the break. Hey, everybody. We're here with Jonathan Cox of John Gets Games. And uh, some of you, most of you probably know John from his YouTube channel, where he uh, reviews and does tutorial playthroughs of board games and uh, does video blogs and a podcast, I think, as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, hey, hey, John, welcome to the, the podcast. Thanks for coming on and talking with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. You're thanks. welcome. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> um, no, thank you. So, uh, so, Johnny, why are we talking to John? Well. We've been uh, we've been watching John's channel for a while since we got into the hobby, and recently we noticed that you were playing a lot of Cube Rails games. So we thought it was a good opportunity to get you on the show and talk about your channel in general, but about what's giving you the train game bug. If sure. That's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll try to figure it out live on air. <laughs> good. Uh, yeah, I mean I, the the YouTube channel's been going for seven years. I've been crazy about board games for about 13 years, and up until about two months ago, I would run away screaming from any game that had the word stock in it. 
and uh, and I would run away. I, I would briskly jog away from games that said train. <laughs> that we makes to, sense. We need to unpack that. I'd like to find out why. <laughs> That's like the core of what I want to know. Is that like what? Um, what? So I guess how long had you heard about games uh, that had trains and stocks and stuff like that? And 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 what was it about them that made you not interested in trying them or, or r- briskly walking away? Sure, sure. I mean, I've been, uh, so I, I fall down the, the rabbit hole of things when I get into them. And so I, I, I fell down the rabbit hole of board gaming in 2009. 2008 is when I was first introduced to Settlers of Catan. And uh, about a year later, I realized how deep the hole went. Um, and I've been, a, I, I, I've like known that train gaming is a thing uh, for most of that time. I think the first time it really became apparent to me was when I went to Board Game GeekCon. Uh, the first time, which would have been 2014, uh, because I remember walking around this convention where everybody's playing games, and it was like, oh, that area over there is where the train gamers play. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a thing. Like, there's a whole, like, like <laughs> separate rooms and everything, and, he kinda, and I kind of walk by, the, the doors open, and I just see a whole bunch of people dead silent staring at the tables. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's, that's where the train gamers are. Let's go somewhere else. Let's keep walking. <laughs> so then, um, Genuinely curious, did that did that color your perception of train games? Seeing a bunch of people like not looking like they were having any fun? Uh no, no I wouldn't say so. Um, I've for most of the last thirteen years, I'd categorize myself as a Euro gamer primarily. Mm. So uh, I get a lot of fun out of staring at a game with a frown on my face. So yeah. I, I, I I I don't mind that 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 part in particular. Um, I think the bigger thing is, um, you know, two thousand nine when I fell down the rabbit hole is also when I found out that boardgamegeek.com existed. Um, that's a really good way to fall down uh, the depths of these things. And um, at some point uh, in, at that time, I heard about 18xx games and, you know, just people talking about how crazy long they are. And uh, you see an image or two of the boards and, you know, they're Spartan. <laughs> uh, Spartan you know, definitely is not our choice like... word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't I guess it's just... You know, you kind of get glancing blows with these things over time, and you start to develop a, a perception mm. um, without really, you know, digging into it. N- none of my friends are into these kind of games, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, subsequently, I found out one of my friends has played one 18xx game before many years ago, and he didn't hate it. But like, it's not a part of his personality. It's just he's a true omni gamer, and I think he was just trying to put a new merit badge on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. That's cool. Yeah, but with regards to like trains in general, they've uh, I've actually been somewhat neutral to them. Like like as far as a theme, like they didn't really do a whole lot for me. But stocks, I don't know. I feel like maybe I just had some bad uh, initial impressions, or not. Uh, just I didn't have fun with the first few stock games that I played. Like like it seemed like I kept playing stock games, and also I mean we could work this in as well. Auction games is also something that I would. Stocks and auctions, I would rank as two of my least favorite mechanics up until two months ago. I was going to say, um, that's that's majority of what we deal with, so, yeah. Which is, a, I think that's the reason why, you know, the, the walk briskly away from trains, because I knew they had lots of stocks and I knew they had lots of auctions, and I was like, a lot of people like that, great, just not for me, because I've played a lot of, uh, you know, many auction games in the past that I've played, I've kind of bounced off of, and I think a big issue I have with those is that it can be really tricky to... <laughs> to evaluate things. And that's that's the entire thing about an auction is like what is what is the right amount? And it, it's hard to not have the idea that um you're probably just gonna keep bidding up until you've overpaid. 
and then you've messed up. <laughs> and people are going to keep going until, until you know, hot potato, who's overpaying for this thing? And obviously that's a, just a gross overstatement uh, on everything. But it's a mentality that I've had in the past, especially with, um, I don't know, certain games I played early on, like Power Grid and Modern Art are like very well-known auction games that uh, didn't really click with me super well. I think because, um, well, specifically with like Modern Art, just the amount that you could bid is so variable. Um, you know, it, it, it could be really hard to tell. Like, you know, you start bidding at like 10 and then it ends at like 63 and you got there in increments of one. Like sometimes maybe it's just a certain groups that you play with or situations, but like that could be a really long drawn out process. But then I remember the first time I played Raw and I was like, oh, this is great. Like I could totally be down with that, but it's an auction game where you have one, two, or maybe three decisions, uh, choices uh, from the tokens that are in front of you. And so that was when I started realizing like, okay, maybe not all auction games, like I, I, I could dig some of them. Um, and uh, with regards to stocks, honestly, there's this game, oh man, Stockpile, there it is. Can you describe it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it came out like six or so years ago. And the, uh, I don't remember all the specifics of it, but it has one of my favorite auction types in it with within buying stocks. So essentially the way you buy things is there is a, a, a list of values. And if I say, okay, I want to pay three for it, put my token down on the three, and then it goes around to somebody else and they say, I want to bid four for that. They put their token on the four and it bumps my token off. And I now have the token in front of me again to put it onto something else. Um, so that is a, t- a style of auctions that I've been fine with. Um, so I tangent around a lot, but like that's the same auction style as Cyclades, which came out in 2010-ish which is a game I really quite liked. Is that but, similar to, is it Keyflower do that kind of, you get people back in Keyflower? Yeah. Um, yeah, you do. That's right. Keyflower is kind of like an auction. I thought about it. I forgot that that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, Feels a little and different when you're using meeples instead of uh, poker chips, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and what you were saying too about uh, a large range of numbers, right? Keyflower key is yeah. like you get a maybe five is like a, a lot. So you have very discrete yeah. steps. And I, I, I've been doing a little spying on you and not spying, <laughs> listening to your, your last podcast episode where you talked about this in the Cube Rails games that you've been playing recently. And you, you yeah. had a moment where you at least... Um, expounded on that concept like maybe you like it better when the auction games have a smaller decision space in them and that makes sense it is easier to evaluate like well i have these five options um yeah how yeah it's like is this worth five or is it worth two you know right yeah yeah. i was talking about um erie railroad the uh winsome game and yeah it was it's one of those things where you know Somebody bids three and somebody else goes four and everyone's like, oh, damn, <laughs> it went to four. <laughs> you know, that I like those kind of situations a little bit more than when it's uh, a lot more granular. But anyway, um, I honestly truly don't remember the specifics of the stock market in Stockpile. I just remember I played it a few times, came dead last every time and didn't really like it. I didn't really like that experience. I didn't like coming last. I felt like I didn't really know what I was doing with it. I think I just that game plus some others. Uh, that I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of. Well, this is a again maybe a bit of a reach, but Mombasa is a um, heavyweight Euro game with a with tracks around the outside of the board. That's you know how high you go up on those tracks. I've heard some people call them kind of like stocks. You can't sell them, but yeah, it, it kind of has a uh, a group vibe there. With like if um, player A and player B go hard on one track, and I'm player C and I go hard on a different track, it's probably 
the, the shared incentives that they have kind of help them out even more. And it seems like I just had a knack for always whiffing on whatever the shared incentive is, like for, for picking the bad, the bad lot. Um, and so, yeah, I guess just lo- lots of little experiences like this with other games that aren't really popping into my head made me think that it just wasn't for me. And um, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm going crazy on Cube Rails games right now, but I actually played an 18xx game two years ago, almost two years ago, exactly. Um, so before I'd played really any of these 18xx games, and uh, and I honestly did it um, because I wanted my my merit badge. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. Like I'd heard about it forever. Um, uh, Josh Starr, who I believe you're familiar with, we are very yeah. We've uh, interviewed him actually yep. on the podcast. Yeah, uh, he reached out to me and asked me if I was interested in meeting up with him to play a game of 1867. Seven. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> and I said, sure. You know, like I, I remember I, you talking about this. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so um, so I did that once two years ago, and I remember I walked away from that game. Um, feeling like it was fun. I had a good time. Um, actually, <laughs> went back and watched my own video for this a few days ago to remind myself what I thought of the game because that's a great thing about putting things out on the internet. You're just kind of like storing your impressions for the future. Um, but I went back to listen to it again um, and I had a, a lot of really good things to say about it. I, I, I think I really quite enjoyed it, but it was still like a four-hour experience with very experienced people. And that's okay. Like for a long time through the ages was my favorite game. And that one oftentimes cracks three to four hours. So like that playtime isn't like the worst thing in the world to me, but I don't know. It just wasn't the kind of thing that I felt. It didn't really grab me. And you know, years, years went by and um, I played Irish gauge probably around the same time, actually, right when, when it first released, um, which is a cube rails game. And it didn't really do that much for me. I thought it was fine, but um it didn't really grab me. And there's a lot of auctions in that game, for sure. Yep. Um, so I think that was yet another experience where I was like, ah, a bunch of auctions, ah, stocks, eh, just not for me. But I tried it. It was only an hour long, so it wasn't that big of a deal. What's changed then? Um, if you, in the past, have not, you know, stocks and, and auctions have not been interesting to you in the past couple months, you've been playing and getting really uh, grabbed by uh, what, Iberian Gate. What was the first one that kind of got your attention here again and what what kicked that off sure yeah i mean uh, that was trans-siberian railroad um and the reason for that is because um rio grande reached out to me and asked me if i wanted to cover it on my channel Uh, i have a relationship with them already um and i was kind of terrified when i first got that email uh because i was like wow that's a very train gamey name (laughs) (laughs) i I never heard of it before um and uh he sent me the rules and so i read through the rules um and i I was just fixated by this game, if I'm being honest. Like I, I read through the rules the first time and I was like, wow, that wasn't that bad. There's not that many rules at all. I thought there I, I thought all these games had so many more rules than that. I didn't really I'd heard the word cube rails before, but I didn't really it wasn't really lodged in my brain for what it really meant that there could be a whole subgenre of these games that were rather quick to play in comparison to much longer train games. Um so I read the rules to Trans-Siberian Railroad, and the next night I read the rules again because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Like I hadn't even played it yet. <laughs> but like awesome. the idea, because because this game has, um, you're buying socks in these railroads and then at a certain point, the Russian government comes along and starts nationalizing these railroads out from underneath you. And I was like, that sounds kind of crazy. Like I never even played it before or like almost any of these types of games. And it, it got me. And, and honestly, like two nights later, I read the whole rule book again because I just, I kept, I couldn't stop thinking about this game. Uh, so I ended up saying, I, I said yes, because obviously at that point, it's like, yeah, I think I can do this, but there's no way in heck I'm going to record this video without playing it first, because I 
I suck at stock games and I, I, I don't want to like record a video of me just playing very poorly. It'll show the game off poorly. It just, it just sounds awful. So um, I wrote some friends into playing it. And actually, as a kind of a nice coincidence, um, I ended up playing a game of Iberian Gage the same night I played Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, that, that was from with a completely different group. Um, just kind of happenstance that it happened. And that was such a fun night. I, I, it, it totally just it, it hit me out of nowhere. Um, I was not expecting to like these games as much as I did. But I played them literally back to back with like 30 minutes to spare in between with, with completely different groups of people. And I think the thing that really jumped out to me first, after actually playing it, because obviously the rule books were grabbing me too, was that it didn't matter if you made bad decisions because the games were not that long. And I think that the my, my big block for stock games for a long time is because I don't want to feel stupid. Like feeling stupid, it's very few people I think want to feel <laughs> feel Agreed. dumb, yeah. especially yeah. In, in games. Like you want to you want to do cool things, and and it seemed like these games, like my first two experiences with these games uh, in that one night, I was like just trying things. Like I'd start to get into the analysis paralysis, and I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to buy that stock. Like, should I buy it? Should I not buy it? I'll buy it. What's the worst that could happen? This is an hour long game. Actually, both of those are more like 90 minutes, but still it just seemed like the ramifications were less. And it just, it also seemed like, like you had a bigger chance of doing something splashy with some of these moves uh, compared to other stock market games that I've played. Again, I'm having a hard time coming up with examples, but it just, you know, you're incrementally increasing your capital. Yay. You're getting money, whatever. But in these games, it seemed like, oh, I'm going to buy that stock. And people are like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. That's, that's a crazy move. You're like, I'm going to build the train here. And they're like, we thought you were going to build the train there. And then suddenly everyone's like, what's going to happen? And I just, I never really remember like what's going to happen moments with stock market games that I played in the past. Um, and I think I'm really circling around until I finally get there. Um, I don't think I've really played any stock market games that had shared incentives like these games have. Um, that, or maybe they did, and that's why I did so poorly at them. <laughs> that's, that's certainly possible. Um, but I, the, the idea, I mean, both of these games are um, uh, the same designer, and both of these games uh, have, uh, they, they lean very heavily into cooperation. Like, it seems like it's kind of like the idea, like uh, uh, more so than maybe even others. So perhaps it was uh, not the, the, the best um, example of Cube Rails in general, but these two you're talking about, ones, still, so. they're just as a reminder, these are uh, Iberian Gage and Trans-Siberian. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, Tom exactly. Russell. Yeah. Um, Who's also the so, designer of uh, Irish Gage. Uh, right. Yeah, and just real quick, uh, Tom is now uh, on Twitter very recently said that she would like to be named or is named uh, Amabel uh, Holland, just so people make that connection um, right, in the future right, right, right. Or, or don't know about that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I think that was the thing that really that really got to me that night was was the fact that we were kind of playing a semi cooperative games, and I never really thought about it that way before. Um, you know, we were like you know little alliances were forming and breaking all the time. Um, I remember in that very first game of Iberian Gage. Uh, I don't, do you want me to talk about the a brief overview of how that one plays? It, the, the 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 rough idea is that when you purchase a stock. Then during the operating rounds, each person with a stock gets to place a, a train out, and the order in which you place the trains out is the order in which the stocks were purchased, which is such a cool idea. And what happened in our very first game of this is um, somebody, 
bought, you know, the first stock in one of the companies. And then other people, you know, somebody else came in, got a couple stock there. Another person came in and got a couple stock. So we were near the end of the first game. And the first person to buy the stock in this company did not want this company to succeed because it was like far more stocks were owned by other people. And uh, that person, since they got to act first, because they were first one to buy the stock way at the beginning of the game, um, they built the worst train route in history and spent like $40 or money or whatever it is in that game so that no one else could actually build any trains afterwards that bankrupted the treasury. And then in that game, when you don't connect up to new cities, the stock market tank, uh, the, the stock price of the, the tanks. So I think it was the red company. I think it was the one that had six stocks in it. And so it was like the last round of the game. And the very first person was like, I don't want red to do well anymore. Cause I have, this is my only stock in the company. And right. because they ran a train line to the, into the Hills, the stock price tanked by six places because nobody could afford to do it. And it was, that was a crazy moment. And I think I was invested in that company. And I remember not being mad. I was just like, wow, good move. That sucks. <laughs> so, it, it's really interesting hearing you describe cube rails. Some of the things that you wow. say apply heavily to 18xx mm-hmm. is in some, sometimes in different ways. But when you talk about shared incentives or somebody deciding that other people are are too invested in this company for them to want it to do well. And 18xx, that usually ends up involving somebody trying to dump a company on somebody else right? after um, after taking all the money out of it or removing trains so that way they have to buy things out of pocket. But there's a lot of that, that your moves aren't necessarily, as opposed to most Euro games where you're always trying to optimize your score in mm-hmm. Cube Rails and 18xx, sometimes you do something negative that's just going to hurt other people more than it hurts you. And I think that's pretty unique to train games in general. Yeah. The gain factor is the shares, right? If I, if I take a minus $5 hit or whatever, and somebody else take, and everyone else at the table takes minus 10, then I am doing, that was a net positive for me, even though I lost, even though the table lost money, you know? Right. Um, Yeah. That, that person who tanked the company, he still had a share in that yep. company and his right. share price went down by six, but I'm pretty much everyone else was also in this company and a couple of people more so than he was. So, you know, he tanked it. And I think he came second. I think it was, it was a close between two people. Um, yeah. So I was just really, it was just really interesting experience. Uh, I think I came, I don't know, middle of the pack or something. And, and I, I had, I had a lot of fun with it. And then about a half an hour later, we played a game of Trans-Siberian Railroad with um, again, a totally different group of people. And um, as I mentioned before, briefly in this game, at a certain point, the Russian government comes along and starts trying to nationalize um, train companies that don't have a stock price that's good enough. And um, this uh, obviously, if if lots of lots of them are low, then that could be a problem. Or if all the train companies are doing well, then maybe the nationalization doesn't happen. But when the nationalization happens, it eats all of the stocks. And this is a game where your stocks are worth the the value printed on the board at the end of the game. So having your stock just disappear is awful. And in that first game, none of us had any idea what we were doing. I taught the rules and then we jumped right into it. Every single company was nationalized. (laughs) (laughs) We we ended the game with zero stocks held by anyone. And it was so much fun. Like we, we were all really digging it. I mean, there was a moment about three quarters of the way through that game. It's a fully competitive game, right? But we had a moment where we all suddenly treated it like a cooperative game. We're like, 
is there a way to save any of these companies? And we're just like <laughs> mathing it out and trying to figure it out. I mean, obviously we made some, we, we way overbid for the companies early on in the game, yeah. which, you know, makes, makes things really difficult later on as I found out subsequently. And, um, and that was just so interesting. Like I, I won the game because I happened to have more money in my pocket from dividends because literally no one had any stocks. So I won the game with like a score of like 60 or something like that <laughs> because that was just the money that I happened to have. Um, and then the next time I played the game, one out of the six companies was nationalized. That was such a different experience. And and that was really when I started to be like, oh, okay. Like these, the, when you look at Trans-Siberian Railroad in particular, it's it doesn't have like a hex map. Like it seems like a lot of Cube Rails games have a hex map with, you know, maybe some terrain and some cities and st- stuff that you're doing. But Trans-Siberian Railroad has all the cities and it's then a, you have connections between the cities. Yeah, it's a point to point style, right? Okay, uh, that's a term that makes sense. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's an official term, but there are generally two kinds of cube rail games that I've seen anyway. And, and honestly, yeah. actually, to be perfectly honest, I think you might be more well versed in train uh, in in not in train games necessarily, but in in uh, cube rails than than either of us. I think you've played more. <laughs> like I've played I've... Uh, Irish Gauge, uh, Chicago Express. If I played another one, Johnny, I have Ride the Rails. I can't wait to play Iberian Gauge. I oh, I've played um, Sioux Line and stuff, right? But and and mm-hmm. Dual Gauge. But basically, that's it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've played a couple more. I've played German Railways and Paris Connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there might be one other one. Right. We, we definitely are. Five, I've probably played somewhere between five and seven different cube rails. If we get the chance, we play an eighteen XX. If we if we can't, we'll play a cube rails or or something else. But um, there are definitely like I oh, Age of Steam. Age of Steam 2. Oh, yeah. Does that count? I don't know if that counts. Um, where was I going with this? Uh, anyway, I feel like that what you're describing, that first play where you have the like off the rails, haha, um, mm-hmm. moments is is very common with, with cube rails because evaluating anything in the first play is real hard because you don't, you don't know the arc. You don't know where the mm-hmm. pressure points are going to be like uh like with trans-siberian you you know how hard is it to connect to a city um what is your especially table to table players um different players might be more a little wanting to be more cooperative or vindictive um Mm -hmm. and then the other thing that i'm hearing you say and i'm just thinking like yep that that sounds maybe what's happening is that with cube rails that i I think that some of the concepts that you're talking about do appear in 18xx but they're harder to mechanically steer there's a lot more steps and in cube rails it's more abstracted and like i want to go this way and i want to buy that stock and that's sort of there's there's fewer levels levers so it's easier to steer the machine um to to get things done and Mm -hmm. and so some of that because it's harder in 18xx to see those big crazy moments and it takes longer to happen it's it's like a concentrated dose of the stuff that you can get um in in cube rails uh, it's a good way to get a taste for if you if you like that kind of stuff or not. So yeah, and I think you hit on a a pretty important point that when the game takes forty five minutes to an hour, if you make bad decisions in your trailing for the rest of the game, you're trailing for the next thirty minutes or so. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's a, the consequences are a lot lower than if you have to sit there for three hours knowing you're dead last. Yeah, like in that first game, you know, none of us have any idea what to evaluate. There's a there's an auction in the beginning and who knows how much to bid for things. And one of my friends who in particular loves to press bu- press buttons to see what happens, um, he didn't win any of the auctions, not by intention, but he just happened to not. 
And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to buy any stock. I'm just going to rush the first dividend phase so that all these companies will have their value tank because that will happen if they're not public. And I'm trying not to go to the specifics of it. But his plan was, I'm going to rush the first dividends. I'll get nothing because I don't own any stocks. And then I'm going to buy stocks in all these companies whose stock prices just plummeted. Um, this was a very bad idea in retrospect. <laughs> I don't know if it's a, I don't, it's, it, it, I'm not going to say that's always a bad idea, but it was a bad idea for him, but he didn't mind. You know, he was pressing buttons. He was, he was curious to see like, maybe I can pick up all these things for cheap. Well, the problem is that since in the very first dividend phase, almost every company lost their company value. All these companies had a much harder time outpacing the nationalization late in the game, you know, 45, 50 minutes later, which is also really, th- that, that's kind of a, an ongoing thing I've seen in many of these games. Not all of them, but where early decisions have a butterfly effect that kind of ripple across the entire game. And I found that to be really fascinating to um, observe almost like I'm playing the game, but also, well, well, for instance, with Trans-Siberian Railroad, um, I've played it four times now and I watched the heavy cardboard stream of it as well. And I played it, I think, three times before I watched their stream. And I remember seeing their auction round and thinking, oh, wow. Like just from their auction round, I was like, I think they're going to have a really rough game. And they did. <laughs> but but it was really interesting, like starting to like have a played the game enough to be like, oh, they bid how much for the initial companies? Oh, I'm, I want to see what happens here. That, that remind <laughs> me that that one's one where your opening bid goes into the treasury of the company, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So were they, were their pretty... bids very low and you thought that's not going to be enough money to, to get stuff done? Or do you thought they were too high and they wouldn't have enough money like personal cash? High. You thought they were too yeah, high. Too yeah, too high. Yeah. Because yeah. the tricky thing in Trans-Siberian is that um, a company is private when one stock is owned and public when there are two. Mm. And you cannot do anything with a private company except buy another stock. And if it's private, when a dividend comes around, the, sale, the, the share price will go down. Yeah. So what can happen is if you overbid in the initial auction, um, you might not have enough capital to actually get those second stocks going quick enough. So the prices are plummeting which is going to make it harder late in the game, of course, because the Russian government's just chugging along. And um, so it's a really interesting, actually, strange situation I've noticed in that game where the lower the initial auction bids, the healthier the trains are overall, which is strange because it means you're putting less money into the treasury early, but it also means you have more money knocking around to buy more shares. Yeah, easier to go The train public, companies right? actually doing things. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just, just something I wouldn't have expected. Um, and it's just fun to watch like it's it's strange to be like not only in the driver's seat but also in the back seat with these games. Like you make some decisions. Well, for instance, that very first game, like I had no control over the fact that my friend decided he wasn't going to buy any stocks and was going to tank everything. Like I had some control. You know, I'm, I'm holding a steering wheel of some size, but my friends decided. You know, he's also got a steering wheel and he's cranking it towards the canyon. I'm like, I guess this is a game where we go off the cliff. I wonder what happens when we go off the cliff. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, kind of a passenger while <laughs> at the same time, uh, which is also kind of fascinating. Yeah. I think you you touched on something that I think makes these games and 18xx as well very rewarding in that after you've played three or four games, you can start to see the forest through the trees. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes these games specifically because there's that ripple effect or the butterfly effect when you can start to see what your early decisions are going to do to impact the rest of the game. I think that they start to be a lot more rewarding than yeah. those early plays where you're still fun, having fun pulling levers. But when you know that first lever 
the impact it might have by the time you get to the fifth or sixth level you pull, I think it's a lot more interesting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Johnny, do I you want to? I'm sorry, John. I was about to ramble into something else. You, you go for it. <laughs> Johnny, do you want to go on some of, the, some of the questions we have in our notes? Sure, yeah. So I actually had, had some non-train related questions. Okay. So uh, I think I mentioned that we've, we've been watching your show for a while now. And uh, actually, some of my purchases have been informed by your playthroughs. One of the things that I really like about your channels, you have what I think is a unique style in the community where you just jump right into gameplay and you teach mm -hmm. while playing rather than doing a long upfront teach followed yeah. by a game. How did you come up with this approach? And is this something that you strictly do for your videos or do you work that same style of teaching into your regular game groups? Yeah. Um, well, I'll answer the second question first. Um, I, I don't teach games this way uh, for people because um, I think this is a very good way for people to experience a game and to get an idea, like, you know, uh, you know, dip their toe in the water, so to speak, but to actually learn to sit down and play a game. I feel like it can be pretty frustrating. I, I think some people like that as well, but, you know, I, I oftentimes don't even cover what all the end game scoring is until I'm 50 minutes into the video because I'm focusing on other things. And, and um, I know some people like that in real life, but I, I don't want to start a game until I know what all the end game scoring is going to be, if that yeah. makes sense. And my friend, yeah. my friends are the same way. Um, so I generally don't, don't uh, teach this way in real life. And as far as the videos are concerned, um, if I'm being honest, I, I, I rip the style off from other people. <laughs> the only other person uh, I, I could think of who does it is Rado. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, he's, he's one of the people I ripped it off from. Uh, you know, he's been making videos since I think 2011 ish. And I started in 2014, early 2014. And, um, and I, I started John gets games because of Rado. Uh, he, he was running his, uh, what like third or fourth Kickstarter campaign. And in the, the description of the, the campaign, he said, you know, one day I've busted up my phone and turned on recording and here I am four years later. And I was like, I am so bored and I have a phone in my pocket and I love to talk about games. So I, I whipped out my phone and I've recorded my first review and arbitrarily named it John Gets Games and, you know, the rest is history. Um, is, is I honestly video, don't know if this would have... Is that video still up? Is it in your, your channel still? Yeah, it's the first one. It was a review of a game called Tuluva. That was my favorite game at the time back in 2014. I'd played it, you know, well over 30 times. And I was like, if I'm going to make a review for a game, I should review one of my favorite games that I played a lot of so that I can like speak to it from. So, I'd, so honestly, because I was lazy, so that I didn't have to work about too hard. I had a lot of thoughts about it already and I could easily teach it. I played the game like 30 plus times. Um, so, yeah. And, and so Rado was definitely part of it. But um, but that was a review. And um, I didn't start making playthroughs until about six or seven months later. And um, it was partly because of Rado, whose style is, you know, I, I, I honestly, I, I, I ripped it off. Um, but also there's another YouTube channel called Miwi, M-I-W-I, um, who was my favorite YouTube channel for board games back at the time. Um, and he made playthrough videos exactly like I make. Um, he, uh, but the thing is he put out like maybe one video a month. Now he does about one video a year. Um, it's just a very much a side project thing for him. Yeah. Um, but th this channel was, I don't know if you've heard the, uh, this idea before, like if something doesn't exist, then th that you want, then maybe go out there and make it. Well, for me with the reviews, I was like, nobody's making reviews that, um, 
that I like. Not saying my reviews are better than others, it's just the reviews that I wanted to watch didn't exist. So I was like, well, I'll just make them myself. And then when playthroughs came around, I was like, Miwi's videos are the best. And he puts out like one every two months. And I want to watch these all the time. Uh, how hard can it be? Yes. I'll try to make one myself. Um, That's why and, train you know. shuffling exists. We wanted to listen to more <laughs> stuff about train game podcasts and stuff. So. Yeah, right. And the, to answer the other part, it turns out sometimes it can be pretty hard. Oh my gosh! Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So yeah, I mean, I, and and um, Rado had another impact in that um, he's the reason I mostly do three player uh, playthroughs. Um, because he's got two player covered, <laughs> you know, that's what he does. He does two player versions of games. And when I really started doing this, I was like, well, there's no reason to be another person making two player playthroughs in the board game space. Rado's got that on, you know, he's got that down. Um, let's try three players. Cause oftentimes two players introduces a bunch of rules, tweaks, AIs, you know, a special deck of cards. And so, you know, and, and yes, the, the, and to answer the question, it is hard. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is why. This is why very few people do this because it's difficult, but then I just kind of didn't stop. So, um, so you, you, we, we talked a little bit or we a lot of it actually, uh, already that you, you're not normally, uh, you don't consider yourself a trained gamer, uh, at heart here. Mm-hmm. Um, what other games do you like to play? Like what are some of your favorite games? Um, I mean, in general, um, Euro games are, are, are very much where I, circle around like those are the games that i get most excited about when i look at like the past 13 years uh, my most played game is teach you and that's a that's a climbing card game it's definitely not a euro <laughs> and you know there's you know that considering i played that game well over 200 times i i think you could i could make a pretty decent argument that that's my favorite game uh then again i played it like two or three times in the last four years so you know maybe that's an argument to pull away from it but um i, I guess in general like the the thing that that um, gets me excited is is Euro style games. I like indirect conflict. Um, I like getting victory points for doing a whole bunch of stuff. I like engine building. I like all that kind of stuff. I guess uh, I'm a sucker for lots of little tokens and bits and uh, conditional scoring modifiers. Next question that we had we'd already kind of covered um, just in organically, uh, but of the one so so. Of the Cube Rails games that you have played, you've played, do we have this right? Trans-Siberian, Iberian Gage, Chicago Express, Paris Connection, Ride the Rails, man, you've Erie Railroad, and uh, the Bytes, isn't this, this a... So Bytes was taught to me by the people who taught me a bunch of other Cube Rails games, and they told me it was a stealth train game, in yeah. their opinion. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds it, like it, from your description on your podcast, this is a, uh, your recent podcast episode. Um, where you covered all these, uh, I listened to that, and it does sound like, yeah, you're buying shares, except your shares are really like ants or something. And uh, 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 picnic food, okay, like an apple or a or a bell pepper, I think is one of the pieces. That... <laughs> cool. I have not, uh, I have not heard yeah. of this one, and yeah, um, I hadn't heard of it either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really simple idea. There's just a, a long chain of randomized stocks in quotes, which are an apple core, a piece of cheese, a bell pepper. And then there's um, an ant that matches each of these colors. Apples are red, bell peppers are green. And when it's your turn, you move an ant, they're, they're all neutral, forward until it reaches the next stock, in quotes, of that color. And then you take a token adjacent to that ant. So if I pick the red ant, I move it until I hit the next red apple, I stop, and then I grab a token on one side or the other of the red apple, which could be anything, really, because it's randomized. Um, so you're controlled in how far you can go because the ants have to go to the next of that color. 
but then you have a couple of options potentially. Um, and of course, by removing these things, you're maybe removing roadblocks for other ants to, you know, go even farther along, which opens off other opportunities. And so the ants are all neutral. They're just a, a really interesting stock acquisition mechani- mechanic, essentially. And then depending on a deck of cards, um, when the ants reach the end of the track, they will go onto a pyramid. Um, you know, red ant goes onto the three spot. That means all red apples are worth three points at the end of the game. Uh, so it's just a variable scoring for the things that you've picked up. Um, so obviously if I've picked up a bunch of apples and somebody else has picked up a bunch of apples and the earlier the red ant heat reaches the end, the better, well then us red apple people might keep moving the red ant to get it to the top of that pyramid because we have all these red apples. Um, so there's definitely shared incentives going on in that game as well. There's going to be a run on this game in the train gaming, uh, society <laughs> now, which means maybe like 700 people are going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I played it once so and it I thought it was like fun. It's actually so. a, a retheme of an, an old game. Yes, called Big Points. Um, big Points, yeah. Yeah, th- that other game was exactly what I said. Uh, this new one, um, also without a theme, this new one has a picnic theme, and it um, you have these decks of cards that change the rules. The old one, it's the same game every single time. This new one, you draw a card at the start of the game, and it says, you know, the first ant to reach the ant hill goes to the top. Or maybe next time you play the game, it says the first ant to reach the ant hill goes to the bottom. So now if you want an ant to score well, you go slowly. Um those are the only two I know. There's more. Maybe there's like, you know, evens and odds or maybe, you know, the, the, the second and fourth ant don't exist. I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of variable rules for it. Um, and one of the tokens you can pick up along the way is variable. You draw a card and then for the whole game, that token does X. So essentially the new version just in, just injects a ton of variability into the system. Okay. Uh, and back to the question that Eric was, I, I believe, asking was of the Cube Rails games that you've played, are there any standouts or favorites? It sounded like maybe uh, Trans-Siberian, but... Uh. Yeah, yeah. I think the only one that you didn't mention is I've also played Northern Pacific. And, Oof, you um, got us smoked. <laughs> I've, I've played... I think I've played 10 or so in the last six or seven weeks. And I have a list... Uh, how much, So I have a list. I, I do this. Uh, there's eight more that I haven't played. I've read the rules to most of them. Uh, and those are, you know on the list to try is, is the uh <laughs> is the sioux line on that list it is yes that is on the list uh, you mentioned try. being a both the driver and, a, and in the back seat or in the sidecar or whatever uh earlier and i immediately thought of the sioux line because in that game as you would know since you've read the rules there are only three companies and there can be up to five players and so if you play with four or five players there's going to be one or two people that do not drive and they just yeah. invest and they're just kind of like trying to play the stock game. And it's, um, it's interesting what happens you know what? there. You mentioning that what makes me want to addend something I said way back at the beginning when you asked me why I didn't like stock games. Um, you just reminded me why. Uh, oh, Imperial no. 2030. Uh, are you familiar with a game called Imperial 2030? Uh, I've heard of it. I listened to some reviews quite a while ago, uh, but I don't, I've never played it and I don't remember much about it. Yeah. It's, um, uh, I believe it's a Matt Gertz design. And um, it was really popular in my gaming group back in 2011-ish. Uh, so it's a couple of years in, uh, and it was just played every single evening. Uh, we would get together. And it's it's a it, it, big map of the world, and you buy essentially stocks in countries. And if you have the majority stock in a country, then you can build infrastructure, you can build armies, you can move armies around and invade other countries. Uh, but as soon as you don't own all in a, the most stock in that country, then suddenly you can't do any of that stuff anymore. And I played this one several times and I was atrocious at it. It usually took several hours and it, it really 
it rubbed me the wrong way. Like I, I was just so very used to, especially back at this point, um, very used to the idea of like, okay, well, I'm in control of South America or, or whatever it is, you know, in the, and um, I'm going to build an engine building and make some industrial factories. And I'm going to make some, some uh, uh, troops to put on the map and, oh, nope, I don't own South America anymore. In fact, suddenly somebody else owns South America and they're moving all of the South American troops into North America where I also want to do well. So like there's this crazy idea where you could like spend a bunch of your energy and then have it just, just be a pie shoved right back into your face. Mm. Um, and also in that game, um, there's the uh, Swiss strategy, I think it's called, where um, if you don't have the, the most stock in any country, then you just don't do anything. You just watch other people go. You have a minority shareholder in a bunch of countries and you can be like that for quite some time until you're able to buy back in and i just remember really disliking that game <laughs> i don't i don't i don't i don't think it's actually a bad game it's probably great um i was just really bad at it and it, you it, just described it, like 18xx to a to a t basically <laughs> <laughs> the only design i've played by him is concordia which is one of my favorites in it yeah it's um concordia is is his most famous one uh most of his designs have a rondelle and and uh, imperial 2030 did have a rondelle um uh, i don't need to go into all these details though uh but yeah it, it was a it was a it didn't i'm sure it had shared incentives but i didn't see it that way i feel like i was trying to play risk and and it was not risk if that makes sense i was trying to play better risk and it was super not that and so you just mentioning sue line the fact that you know you could potentially not be in control of anything uh, that is a thing that could happen in other game. So maybe I won't like Sue Line, but again, I like <laughs> well, just putting, make sure you I own like, a company. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But but I've also heard that apparently all the companies are crap in that game. And so it's, it's a, it's <laughs> I want to try mess. it. It's a hot mess. It's probably going to be terrible, but uh, not terrible, but it's probably going to be a, a strange, awful, you know, like game experience from like a trying to do well. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping it, uh, it's a fun, it's a fun mess. I'm looking forward to trying it. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's some level of masochism in every uh, 18xx player or train gamer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was a big derail. Sorry about that. I mean, like, let's move into 18xx a little bit. Um, so, like you said, you played 1867 with yeah. uh, you said I, I think it was with Ambi, Toby, and Joshar. That's correct. Yeah. The the four the three of them and and you. Um, yeah. So. I don't know. It's been a while now since you've played it. Do you remember much about that game besides the fact that it was a four hour game? Like, did you, uh, do you remember any uh, details as far as like how you felt about it during the play? Yeah. A couple things. I mean, I, like I, I said, I, I went back and watched my impressions video that I put out that week so that I could remember what my thoughts on it were. Um, but, uh, but certain things that really stuck out to me were that, um, it was a kind of game where you run, the same companies for most of the game like it didn't seem like it was a the kind of game or at least that's what i was informed of and the way our one play worked out it wasn't the kind of game where somebody like comes in and steals a company away from you it seemed yeah. kind of like no it's not very you, often you just, yeah yeah um which i liked i liked that idea a lot um because i'm you know not very used to the uh the fluid nature that, that, that these companies can certainly have especially with the the time investment um, I remember being surprised at how simple the operating rounds were. I was not expecting that at all. Um, I thought it'd be really complex. Uh, I genuinely thought there'd be pick up and deliver because they're trains. Like I, I knew I knew so little about it going into it that I was like, oh wait, it's just like the, the number is the number of cities, and then you just find the 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 path with the biggest numbers. Okay, that's <laughs> it. 
All right. <laughs> um, obviously, there's a lot more to the overall game, but yeah. the operating round bit um, surprised me. Um, and at that point, I don't think I was... I think I was pretty neutral to the idea of route building in general in games. And um, subsequently, eh, maybe it's maybe it's 1867's fault. Uh, subsequently, I've been much more interested in route building games um, uh, uh, since then. Uh, the idea of, you know, making the routes that are going to be different each time and, and using them. And uh, uh, I remember I did pretty well in that game, but I'm pretty sure uh, I was bowling with bumpers. <laughs> sure. So there's there's a lot of idiosyncrasies to the various games within the 18xx genre. But there's kind of two large camps, uh, operational games and financial games, or what a lot of people are engineering games and financial games. And it sounds to me like you may be more inclined towards liking the operational games where there's a lot less fluidity and ownership of companies and uh, a lot more of the game takes place on the map and is more about optimizing how you run your companies. And investing yeah. in other companies wisely as well. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, actually, I have a pretty good uh, point for that. And then I just finished up a game of 18 Chesapeake, uh, which is the second 18xx game that I played. Um, uh, the caveats to that is I played it asynchronously online on uh, 18xx.games um, with some friends. And um, if I'm being honest, I didn't love the experience. Uh, it, it was a disorienting game in a lot of ways. Uh, because I don't know if this is the way you're supposed to play it, but it was it was the kind of experience where people would you know buy into the presidency and float a company in one round, and the next round sell all of that stock, and then do it again in a different company. And I just I was uh, dizzy with the amount of stock selling that happened in that game. I had just no idea why people were selling specific stocks, and um, it's it put two things into my mind. Uh, thing one, yes, I think I much prefer. Um, spending my my mental power on uh, the operating part, the route building. And the second thing I realized in that play is that maybe my issue all along with stocks wasn't that I didn't like stocks. Uh, maybe my issue all along is I don't like selling stocks uh, because something about Cube Rails games, you almost never sell stocks in these games. Like they're all about acquiring, 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 and then the game is over. And, you know, that that moment where you buy a stock is is a really important moment because it's, you know, it's around your neck for the rest of the game and maybe it'll pull you down to a defeat or maybe it won't. Uh, the idea of being like, ah, next round, maybe I'll just get rid of it. I'm just like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, the level of uh, destructive versus constructive actions in cube rails are uh, much more heavily towards the constructive side. Yes, and, uh, and that's not to say like that the selling is bad or anything. It's more just for my mind. I think that right now it just doesn't really plug in well. Like with the, the strategy part of my brain, um, it just almost seemed arbitrary. Like what, what my friends are doing. I'm sure they weren't. I did not win. I came in third out of five. But um, <laughs> I joked to them. I, I felt like a monkey at a typewriter. Um, <laughs> just like I, I was doing stuff. Like I made it through the whole game. I bought some stocks and I ran some trains and I, I got third place. And I think I paid less attention than some of my friends who, who worked a lot harder um, and, and got lower scores than me. Uh, actually, the real analogy that I had for Chesapeake um, was I felt like I was playing multiplayer chess where I only understood how pawns worked. Are you, uh, um, I'm curious, this group that you're playing with, um, first of all, are they relatively new as well or are they more experienced players? It was a range. Um, I was probably the newest. The two people who did worse than me 
were slightly more experienced. Uh, and then the two people who were first and second were uh, very experienced who won and moderately experienced who came in second. Yeah. And, and when you were playing, I, you said it was, is it an async game? Yeah. Was, what was the level of like strategic discussion and, and like learning and teaching in that game? Like, that were you guys like, like cards to the chest or were you like, oh, why did you do that? And they would explain it. Um, it was essentially the latter. Um, we had a Discord channel and we talked a lot about everything that was going on. Um, but if I'm being honest, uh, it all went right over my head. It was it was a strange experience um, because I feel like I'm a pretty smart person. Um, obviously, I like games a lot and these are games. And yet, you know, they would be having these discussions in Discord. And I'd be like, wow, that's definitely English. But I have no idea what they're they're talking about. <laughs> You're just making me want, I really want to play a game with you now and just like try and demystify some of that stuff. Because like you said, at least the rules for these are not, they're not where the complexity is. Um, you know, the rules are simple. And the great part about them, in my opinion, is that they um, that they get out of the way pretty quickly and it turns more into uh, what can I, how, what can I do with these? Like I have a set of tools, which are the rules and I can, yeah. it's a very sandboxy. You're allowed to, like you said, open a company and, and sell it. Uh, yeah. you know, there's some restrictions, but, um, you can try and figure out like, I want to get there and do this. And then how do I get there with the rules is, is the fun part for me. Um, and yeah, I just want to, I just want to play a game with you and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, see if it's like a synchronous game with, with sure, voice right you know that kind of experience is a is a great way i think to i don't know to to get you get past some of that not that you should like should necessarily like these or, or whatever it's um yeah so to that point, I mean, I, I, and i'll be the first to admit that playing that async the first time was probably not i the wouldn't right way to yeah i wouldn't recommend that with any 18xx <laughs> is the first even if you've played a bunch of them johnny and i if i've we played were, like 30 different titles and i absolutely hate hate playing a new title for the first time asynchronously. Yeah. yeah. It's it's real hard because then you are referring to the rules back and forth between turns. And especially uh, with us, there's so many little rules that kind of do this across games that are like, eh, like what is the, is it 50% of the float in this game or 60% of the float? Like is right. there restrictions on when can I sell? Is it sell, sell by sell? Or is it, you know, once, how, do, you know, how all these things work in this game? And when you're learning it, um, asynchronously, it can be it can be very difficult. Yeah. I mean, I just for to kind of as a reference, we can play a game of a game like eighteen Chesapeake in about four hours with having experience. If I were to play a game of the same complexity and length asynchronously for the first time, and I had to reference rules, I would personally spend far more than four hours on just my turns. And that's not even me having to sit there while other people take their turns. Yeah. So the, the time commitment and, and the mental fortitude required to get through an asynchronous game while learning the rules to that game is too high for you, for me. And, and I love these games. That makes yeah. sense. I mean, for, from my perspective, I mean, again, I mean, I'm just like a, uh, a good example of what not to do here. Um, but I actually did not spend that much time thinking about the game because I didn't know enough to really know what to think about. Um, in our Discord chat, there were definitely people who were like, 
ah, you know, it's all I've been thinking about for the last three hours is, you know, what, what's so-and-so going to do? And I'd be like, man, every time it'd be my turn, I'd be like, I, I guess I'll buy that stock because I can. And, you know, I get to the OR and be like, well, I guess I'll run this train that way because it makes me the most money. And then I just go on with my life. And I think, like I said, I, I felt like I, I, if I was playing chess, I totally nailed the pawn rules. Like I totally understood how pawns worked. <laughs> and like, I mostly understood how rooks work. And I had no clue how knights or bishops worked at all. And so I just didn't even think about it. And because of that, all the stuff was happening and massive strategic discussions and people explaining why they're doing things. And I'm just like, it just went right over my head. And so again, I'm just probably a, a good story about like the wrong setting to, to learn these things because... Um, Do you have a, an appetite to explore 18xx further if the group you were playing with picked a game that they thought might fit your tastes better? I'm, I, I'm not in a... Yeah, I... I there's very few things I say no to as a blank slate, especially because I, from what I understand in 18xx, like it can be very varied, like like the way one game plays to the next. Like my my one play of 67 that I vaguely remember, we barely sold anything. And in Chesapeake, it seems like you just, you you buy just so that you could sell them so that you could buy something else so that you could sell that to buy something else. And like, it's a totally different experience, even though, you know, the backbone of it, I, I imagine is very similar from what I remember. Yeah, it sounds like so you were you playing just, with a pretty aggressive group as far as like uh, pushing capital and all that stuff. Uh, that's and, definitely possible. And I agree with you in 67 and, and its brother 61 that you basically don't sell. And you sell sometimes, but um, it's it's more about buying when it makes sense and then making money off of that when you bought. Uh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so you you played Async. Um, you played on Doc Games. When you when it got around to be your turn, did you go through the trouble of going back to your last turn and seeing what everybody did, or did you just sort of take your turn in a vacuum? Um, I mostly took my turn in a vacuum. Yeah. I, I would I would in the stock rounds I would definitely look to see what people were buying, um, and it would you know try to figure out why they would do those things. Um, and then when it got to the ORs, I, I mostly just I, I owned one company the whole game long. Yeah. Um, he, PRR was, was my baby and I, I ran that one company the whole game long and, um, the map got bigger around me essentially. And I think that's another thing, another problem with playing it like this is that, you know, I, I'm not experiencing these people's turns. Like it's just right. a thing that's happening in like a parallel universe as opposed to me sitting there watching them do these things. And maybe like, I feel like I should get in on that company over there because of how well it did, you know, you, you, in, in doc games, you could see like the, the last payout and everything and i use that for some of my decisions and i came in third so like yeah. out of five like I'd, <laughs> but yeah but again i that's what i was gonna I say i love sorry johnny oh um i love 18xx dot games i love what toby has done and the amount of the the volume of 18xx that's accessible to people especially during covid is amazing and we've talked about this on the show before but i I can't really play that way. Uh, the The human factor being removed from the game takes away a big portion of the enjoyment. And it sounds like like maybe if that aspect were in the game for you, that, that maybe you might feel a little bit differently about the games. Because for somebody that loves these games enough to start a podcast about it, to yeah. not really enjoy playing them online... I can't even imagine being lukewarm on them and trying to right. enjoy playing it online. 
Yeah, yeah, that I, makes sense. I was mostly just going to suggest that um, you know, if you do if you do play again, have the appetite uh, to try and do it synchronously, and that that makes that whole thing a lot easier. Even if it's on dot games, I play synchronously on dot games a lot and enjoy that much more than than Johnny does. Um, Sorry, when I say online, I I I mean async. Async. Okay. Okay. Well, with yeah. synchronous. Right. You you get to sit there and watch and hopefully you're playing with people who who like to dictate their turns a little bit, just like at a table, yeah. you know, like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm running this way. I run from here to here to here. I get $18 a share or whatever. Um, or I'm going to sell. I will miss entire like very important things. I've had games ruined for me by playing asynchronously where I didn't catch that the game's rules enforcement. Actually, in, in a cur- game I'm currently playing of 61 which is the same style as 67, the tokens that you uh, lay, they have a weird rule in this game that's unique to these two games. That is the the cost you pay is the distance from your last token by like as the crow flies and you count up like yeah. $20 per hex or whatever it is. And I like put a token down on my turn and I, you know, moved on. And then like next round, somebody pointed out that I paid $160 for a token. And I was like, what? And I was like, oh, <laughs> right. I forgot the rule, but the game did it for me. And I never even yeah. noticed it, you know? So, yeah, yeah. so that can be the automation and, and yeah, if you don't spend the time to click back to everybody's turn, which can be a lot of work. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, just about three weeks ago, I played a, a synchronous game of City of the Big Shoulders on Board Game Arena. And it was fine. I don't really want to go into the specifics of it, but I will say that I I didn't love playing even synchronously on Board Game Arena because, again, like things moved and there's a chat box that tells you what happens, but you don't see what happens. Um, yeah. With this pandemic, um, I've really fallen into playing on Tabletop Simulator a lot. Like, I think yeah. I've got over 600 hours of games played on TTS over the last year. And I didn't realize up until that moment when I was playing on Board Game Arena, which is similar analog to dot games for, um, as, at least as far as the experience is concerned, like how much I paid attention to people's little hand cursors in Tabletop Simulator, yeah. like to kind of know what they're thinking about, what they're doing. You see that little hand picking up a pile of money and moving it over there, and it just... Even these little things make you feel more like you're playing a board game, um, and, and yeah, a lot of into the experience more. A lot of people in uh, I don't know if I should say a lot. I don't know that I can speak for the community with that much authority, but it, it feels like a lot of people in the 18xx community prefer other platforms because of their efficiency. But I'm with you. I would much rather play on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, it feels yeah. the most like playing face to face. Even if you have to like do all the dividend math yourself or whatever, right? They, they've it's done not, some, yeah. it's not that hard. And some pretty good, some of the mods, most most of the mods, half, I don't know, uh, have like some pretty good things where if you own shares and it's in your hand, you just hit like pay and it yeah. sends all the money to everybody, which is pretty nice. Yeah, the yeah. level of scripting in 18xx games specifically makes a big difference in the experience on TTS. Yeah, sure. that makes sense. So can we, let's talk about accessibility for a little bit. This is going to be the fun part. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> one of our patrons uh, actually asked us, but we wanted to talk about the same thing. So this, I'm just going to read his question. Yeah. Uh, this is from Joe L. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Uh, what is it about 18xx that makes it so daunting for reviewers? Despite being easy to make fun of, uh, I mean, we do use spreadsheets and calculators. The games aren't actually more complicated and oftentimes less so than most Euro games that are praised by the same reviewers claiming 18xx is overly complicated and inaccessible when you what's your take on that um well i'm gonna i'm gonna use this i'm gonna use 18 chesapeake for my whole take for this um disregarding the asynchronous part uh because 
um, I taught myself the game um, because, you know, it was asynchronous and we're playing on dot games. It's not like tabletop simulator where somebody can come on and teach me how it works. So I just said, you know, I'm going to read the rule book and then I'll know how to play 18 Chesapeake and then I'll play it online. And um, I had a really rough time with it. Uh, I, to a certain extent, I could, you could say that I am a professional rule book reader. Um, you know, my, my job is this YouTube channel and the, the, the funding behind this YouTube channel is sponsored playthroughs and I make sponsored playthroughs by reading rule books and then teaching the game from those rule yeah, books. I wouldn't so say I, to a but, certain extent, I'd say a hundred percent. So it's like, like, like I've read thousands of rule books and, uh, for some very complicated games. And I finished the 18 Chesapeake rule book and did not know how to play the game. Uh, I, I sort of understood it kind of, but there were almost no examples in the rule book, especially for the hard parts. Um, uh, and the order, like right at the very beginning, it starts talking about, um, these private companies and what they do. There's a paragraph of text of what each one does with reserve tokens they could put on specific places or reserve tiles. And it made no sense to me. And I read so many rule books, <laughs> but so it, it just had a, it just seemed so vague. I was just like, there's was, there was like 10 ways I could interpret this paragraph. And I think because I am new to this area, I'm all 10 of these seem valid. But if I had played many of these games, there's much more experience to be like, oh no, this makes sense. There's one way to do this because it matches up with my experience set. But for me, I was completely mystified um, as to the exact ordering of when you could put the reserve tiles down. Um, the one company that I ended up buying into Oh, what was it? It was the most expensive one. I can't remember the name of it, but um, I, I thought I understood how it worked. Uh, you you start with a share, and I didn't really understand how the cost uh, the framework for it worked. Uh, yeah, and yeah, the Vanderbilt exactly. And um, th th my hardest part for the rules was specifically that. But um, you know, they're just the, the rulebook explains things like you know selling a train to another company and that kind of thing. But it's it just says it once in very succinct language, and then it moves on and. Um, I just uh, for a first time person or first ish time uh, coming into this, it's these things don't really stick out as like big things. Like I didn't feel like I could teach the game after reading the rule book. Mm. And, and that's what I do for a living is I read a rule book usually once. And then I teach the game to a camera. Um, and, and I, I could not uh, for Chesapeake and um, even right in the middle of the game, people will be doing things, talking about strategy, um, pulling certain levers. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Wow. That lever exists. I vaguely remember reading that once in the rule book and that that's a, that's a huge ramification. And um, specifically um, with uh, those private companies, how they're bought by the companies and then a certain, like the, the way the money transfer works, you can kind of like squeeze that money into your own pocket. And it just seemed like there were a lot of ways in which you could gain leverage on the gaming situation that just were not really called out in the rule book. Um, it, it, like I, I think... Uh, maybe the rulebook wanted me to explore these and find these in nooks and crannies. Uh, but for me, I would much rather it had just had a big sidebar box, the big bold heading and be like, this is a detailed explanation for how you sell a train from one company to the next and why you should do it. And another sidebar, this is how you can squeeze some money out of that private company you bought money in by having another company buy it out from you, et cetera. Like th those things just didn't mean anything to me. And so essentially I played the game not having access to so many of the levers because I didn't really understand them. I barely knew they were there and, and it wasn't anywhere near as fun. I think as the other people who, who saw all these levers and saw a much more interesting game uh, than yeah. I did. So I think there's a, 
a couple of things. First of all, I think that 18xx rulebooks share a bit of a genealogy with war game rulebooks, which are also notoriously poorly written. And I think it's also compounded by the fact that in a lot of cases, these rulebooks are written almost assuming a knowledge of the 18xx system. Right. So they, they don't literally only tell you the differences, but I think that they assume some level of knowledge that's not, I have never played an 18xx game. I am learning it solely by reading this rulebook. Mm-hmm. And I think at least some publishers are, are trying to correct that. I know Josh tried to make the 1861-67 rulebook much more accessible to a player who has never heard of or seen an 18xx before. So mm-hmm. hopefully the rulebook issue does start to get better, but I do agree that they can be a bit obtuse yeah, to a I newcomer. Mean, so what you've said is, is pure gold for for people, those people, Josh, uh, Scott Peterson, uh, anybody who's publishing 18xx games, I really hope that they're listening to this and then they take some of that to heart and they realize even even knowing that their primary audience is most likely going to be people like us who know these games and just skim the rules for like, where are the differences here and don't have any questions on the normal sound, the normal standard stuff. Um, they, there are, uh, some, some examples of stuff that like what you were describing, um, I know 1846 and, and like Josh's new 1861, 67 rule book and a handful of others have like a detailed orient, uh, detailed example of play section. Um, not that, and it doesn't necessarily do what you're at, what you're asking. Like, here's, here's like the, you know, how to do this. Ooh, think about what you can do with this kind of thing. Um, which I am of two minds on, and I would agree that it's for someone who's sitting down like you reading the rule book and hoping to know how to play at the end without that, you're, you're going to be quite lost and, and, and the exploring process is going to be pretty, um, painful i think or or slow anyway um but for people i know like johnny in particular uh doesn't really like to have stuff spoiled for him in the game where he plays and he wants to like he wants to discover that stuff like you said the rule book is sort of right hoping you get there on your own um yeah i don't know i i don't like when strategy is intermixed with the rules. I have no problem with some sort of addendum at the end that says, hey, here are some, yeah. uh, uh, Splatter does this. And I, I think it's great. I was just going to say Put, At the end of the rule book, they say, hey, here are some things that you should consider uh, that if you don't may ruin your first experience because your first action could mean that you're out of the game for yeah. the next two hours. And I think <laughs> that's fine because you can choose to read that or not read it. Right. But I know that when... Um, I don't want to say the name of the game, but one of the 18xx games that came out since we started playing them, uh, the publisher wanted to mix in some strategy stuff into the rule book and sort of, uh, I remember the discussion, it, it sounded like it was like, oh, I'm going to actually kind of like sneak in some, like try to push people into playing a certain way by putting it in the rules section rather than a strategy section. Mm-hmm. That would really turn me off from 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 particular games if that were in the rule book that way that makes sense i mean very, i think very interesting you could make your thoughts on that though john i appreciate that yeah 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 i i mean that that makes a lot of sense i i'm sure i mean there's when there's this breadth of variety within a similar system like obviously i mean you're looking for novelty uh, when you're playing one to the next to the next um you and so a big part of that is probably figuring out 
um, some of these tricks and hidden levers and whatnot. Um, it it kind of sounds like these games need two rulebooks. Like there should be the the four page version for you, and the twenty page version for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know that, like it, it, some of them. I know people aren't going to like this uh, comparison, but fantasy flight games honestly may be a good model to follow in that regard because they typically have a learn to play and a rules reference and for the experienced a10xx player you could probably open up the rules reference and be good to go but if you want you know a four turn tutorial on how to start your game so you can understand some of the mechanisms in mechanisms in more depth then you have that rule book yeah as well yeah that that makes sense i mean i think another thing about this not trying to manipulate your question too much but one thing that i was thinking about a lot with 18 chesapeake uh because i'd heard like this is a great you know intro game for people getting into 18xx um is that it still had a lot of hidden edges and kind of mysterious shadowy levers and whatnot um and, and to come right back to the private companies um they were complicated for me and i know that people are probably listening to this and thinking i'm an imbecile because they're probably the most simple things ever. But like the asymmetries between the private companies seemed so convoluted and obtuse to me as a a new person coming into this, reading these paragraphs. And I was just like, why couldn't it just be like, this company starts with a two train and that company, you start with a bonus stock. Like, I totally understand that. And I'd be like, cool, I'm going to bid in that company because I want a two train. Um, Instead, it's like, you know, they have these reserved hexes for specific spots, I barely looked at the map. The map means nothing to me at this point. So knowing about these reserve spots, they exist. But why do you care? That, that's part of part of it. Um, and then the Vanderbilt completely tripped me up. I mean, I, I bought into it kind of arbitrarily. because like, ah, it's the initial auction round. I'll bid on this. I'll bid on that. And I ended up with that one, not understanding remotely how it actually worked and, and what it actually worked out to be. I ended up doing fine with it. But I just remember feeling like this is this is the good intro. Like I want the the intro intro. <laughs> so uh, first of all, I, I don't think I definitely don't. And I don't think most people would think you're an imbecile uh, for feeling the way you do about the game. <laughs> I actually feel Eric's probably going to roll his eyes a little bit. I feel a little bit vindicated <laughs> hearing you talk about 18 Chesapeake this way, because there are so many debates in the 18 XX community. We'll debate anything for weeks, months, <laughs> A lot of people say 18 Chesapeake was like the new go-to beginner game. And I prefer a game called 1889, which uh, Josh Starr is actually going to be reprinting soon. And one of the first things I said when I saw 18, after I played 18 Chesapeake was that I didn't like the blocked hexes or the complexity of the privates, not because I couldn't play with them or understand them, but that seemed to be a level of undue complexity for somebody who's never seen or heard of 18xx and to hear you with a totally fresh take point those specific things out i think that's totally valid Uh, and i do feel a little bit vindicated because i had the same (laughs) thoughts i think i think another thing about it too um about i don't mean to harp on that game it's just the one i played last week and it 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 made me think about this stuff a lot is that um and again maybe because i'm more of an operating round type person um but you know that game starts out and you have this big old auction which is kind of a weird auction too. You're not just like auctioning up. You're like putting tokens down and then suddenly somebody says, no, I want to pay for it. And there's like this waterfall of auctions at you. Yep. Strange, very strange auction. Um, not saying it's bad. It was just, it threw me for a loop. Um, 
So you finish all that, and then it's like, cool, first stock round, here is enough money to buy like nine stocks, <laughs> seven stocks, like a lot of stocks. And you're just like, holy crap, you're making so many decisions with the auction right into the stock, buying round and all that before you even touch the board. So many decisions. Um, and going back to CubeRails games, like they very oftentimes have an initial auction and they very oftentimes start with a stock round type of thing. And you could buy like maybe three auctions, maybe three stocks, you know, two or three stocks, maybe. Uh, maybe that person who buys no stocks and tries to see to make that if you can make that work. And and then you move into the operating part of whatever game that is, this uh, random placeholder cube rail game. And then you go back. Well, I guess I'll say Iberian Gage because that one that starts off with a stock round and then it goes into an operating round and then a stop round and then two operating rounds and then a stock round and then two operating rounds. And so right there at the beginning, though, you could you could maybe buy three stocks. And so that that feels like I could totally get that. And then you get to the operating round. You see how that kind of plays out. And then you're back into another stock round. And in the second stock round, you might be able to buy one stock, maybe, because only one dividend paid out. Right. And you probably spent most of your money in the first stock round and that initial auction. And and I'm totally fine with that. But in Chesapeake, it was just like, you know, I the think first stock may round. may have underbid a- the privates because uh, it's usually after the private auction, everybody has just enough to start a company or, or sometimes not even enough to get to five shares to start a company. That's possible. Yeah. So and maybe to, to have the money to buy nine shares, it sounds like maybe the privates went for a little too I long. might also be exaggerating, um, but, but I do know like you need the six stocks to float the company, right? Um, so I guess that's actually probably a better number is six. Like the, a couple people were able to get the six to float a company by themselves, yeah. um, uh, which in and of itself was already a concept that was completely foreign to me, uh, the, the floating companies thing. I kind of got it throughout the game, but, um, it was a bit, I just want to be your teacher. (laughs) The nice thing is these are, these are, uh, common threads in every 18xx. Like once you learn the concept of full capitalization companies, it's going to apply to like half of the games, half of the 18xx games out there. What you're saying, I think is that the feedback loop, and I agree with this, the feedback loop on cube rails is much shorter, right? And you get, yeah. you're, you experiment, you see what happens, you come right back, and, and you have fewer decisions to make in the, in the meantime. Um, and I agree with that, uh, with, with, with 18xx, with Chesapeake, which I do feel is one of the better learning games um, out there to get into 18xx. Uh, but really, any of a number of maybe 10 different games with the right enthusiastic, helpful teacher uh, will, will be suitable. Um, that one, yeah, you do have more discrete, many more discrete steps, um, to get back. But what we were, what you were describing with the cube rails, I was just hearing like the, the arc of the first, you know, operating round, stock round, operating round, second stock round for, for 18 Chesapeake. It's generally have just enough to open a company, which does involve many more discrete steps of buying the shares. Yeah. And then in the second, generally people don't, can't afford much because they have you know, one company has operated and that's it. And it's fallen back and it, it bought a train and didn't pay out. Um, and after a couple of plays that, that process gets shortened and you sort of, the macro picture is, is what you start seeing, but yeah, the feedback loop to get that for the first time is real. It's, it's definitely drawn out, uh, compared it takes to a while to get there. Yeah. yeah. It, it, that's the, the short, the short thing. It, it takes a while to, to go around the full racetrack yeah. <laughs> to yeah. be like, Oh, okay. So that's, that's how you do a full lap. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. And, and well, you know, we're all I'm, about I'm really investments trying, but... in the genre and it's definitely an investment to learn these games yeah. and to yeah. learn how to play them well. Yeah. I mean, 
again, as a total outsider here, like it had me feeling like, is there a game where you have that initial stock uh, auction round and everything? And then, I don't know, maybe you start with an operating round and then do a stock round. So like you've already seen some stuff happen and you're like, okay, now I want to buy stock in that train because that, that company, because it did this or that. I don't know if that game exists. I don't even know if that would work, but I'm those are the kind of things of, that pop uh, into my head. Johnny, I know you... what happens if not all the privates sell. Oh, yeah, okay. That's but it. it's not a real operating round. I'm curious if there's any... I can't think of anything that sort of like randomly assigns companies to players because you need... The, the players need to decide what needs to start to, to start things up. So yeah, I can't think of anything yeah. that does that. Um, but And maybe that's more the, the privates thing in a lot of 18xx games versus cube rails where like, or generally, at least I don't think I bumped into any with privates. You just buy stock in that company and then, you know, oh, you're laying track? Okay, cool. Well, you have a stock in that company. Maybe you want to make that company go well. has got some uh, I mean, a game like a game like 18U okay. is, is probably the closest that I can think because you're draft... Well, with the draft variant, you are drafting the companies. So there's not the process of buying up to five or six shares to open up a company. Uh, so there's a lot fewer actions. You you might have missed yeah, it. Johnny to, said 18 to get into, EU yeah. for was is one that does that. Uh, 1846 is one that drafts. Uh, well, privates. As privates. Well. I'm talking about companies. Oh, like where yeah. you go right from. Oh, right. Where you go right from the draft to operating rounds. Right. There's no buying shares in between. Yeah, I see. Which sounds like uh, Jonathan was looking for maybe. Right. Maybe I, I love <laughs> that game. <laughs> yeah. Um. So actually, uh, taking a step. Back away from from trains for a second. We have another question from Mike A. Uh, he asks: Tastes are hugely varied in games. How do you balance between "quote unquote" just the facts reviews that give audience info to make a choice to play, buy, or seek out, or not, versus curating recommendations based on your own personal tastes? And assuming that you do any of the latter at all, how do you communicate your tastes to the audience so that they can figure out? if they're going to agree with you or not? Uh, well, the answer to the first question is I essentially stopped doing reviews because that was so hard. I mean, it's a, there's, there's a, it's a nuanced, complicated thing why I decided to stop doing reviews, but, but part of it was um, not feeling super comfortable anymore with, my, with that subjective part of, of what I was doing. Um, you know, I, my reviews were, I like to think somewhat detailed and very compartmentalized. And, and I, I, I didn't like how authoritative I felt like I was trying to be sometimes with specific things like this was good. This was bad. And I would try to say for me and, and I would, you know, I would very often try to caveat, um, you know, this part didn't work, but I don't like auctions or, you know, whatever it, uh, my, my other personal bias is. Um, but you know, to a certain extent, people oftentimes just don't hear that. They, they just, hear the parts that they want to hear, which could be kind of frustrating and was part of the reason why I stopped um, doing reviews. But I do I do still make subjective content. Um, I do vlogs where I, I discuss the games that I liked. Um, all these Cube Rails games, I've been talking about them in my vlogs a lot. And and um, honestly, I guess it's just what I said. I, I try to mention biases as they come to me as, as often as I can. You know, like, I played this game four times. It's great. I've won all four games, though. <laughs> you know, like maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that is part of the reason why I'm yeah. enjoying it so much. Uh, and, and I try to also, you know, say things like, well, Imperial 2030, like, I think it is probably actually a really good game. I just don't like it. Uh, that's fine. Like, I, I don't think that means it's bad. Uh, same with Twilight Struggle. I sold that game after I played it twice because I just, it's like, this is a great game that I hate playing. <laughs> and, you know, that's fine, um, you know, because tastes can be so varied. 
Uh, we have a but... bit of a history with that game. Okay. <laughs> we, yes, um, we feel it... similarly. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess I guess the short answer is I just try to mention biases as often as possible. Um, I just try to be as transparent as possible. I, I don't know. It's, it's only, there's only so much you can do. Um, it is difficult. And as a, as a consumer, I mean, we, we talk about how we feel about games on the podcast, but we don't really review things. And as a consumer of a lot of board game content on YouTube, I almost entirely ignore reviews. I like watching, you know, shut up and sit down and no pun included for the comedy, but <laughs> I find it very difficult to impossible to make a decision on a game based on how somebody else feels about it. And that's why I really prefer playthroughs because I can see how it plays. And even if I don't think the play is optimal that I'm watching, I can get enough out of it to know whether or not, or at least have a good idea as to whether or not I'll enjoy playing it. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree that that's also part of the reason why I stopped doing reviews. I was making playthroughs as well. And I just like, Watch the game being played and see yeah. if you like it. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, yeah. kind of I where I'm on like 2x, so it only, you know, I can watch a, a two hour <laughs> playthrough in an hour. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the first time Johnny's hearing your voice down in its natural register. Yeah. I thought you just spoke really fast because I forgot I had permanently put YouTube on 2x. You, he does you know, speak fast. You, you speak very know, quickly, Jonathan. <laughs> it was a really good That's the funny thing is I get, I, I sometimes get comments of people like, man, Talk like like talk slower. I have to listen to you on 0.75 and I can't barely understand you. And then other people are like, yeah, no, two, two X speed all the way. And oh it's just, you know, there's so many tastes out there. I've tried to talk slower in my videos over the years because of this feedback that's come through. Mm. But generally when I get excited, I just, I, I talk very fast. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's true. I'll be honest. I listened to, um, I, I was exaggerating two X. I listened to almost everything at 1.5 X. I do watch your videos at 1.25. Nice. That's funny. Um, I don't listen to anything on 1.5x, and uh, I can keep up with it at one. So that's good. That's good. Um, I think that's all the the stuff that we had planned to discuss. Is there anything that you you want to talk about? Uh, anything we uh, missed? Well, or? just just because I like to talk about these things, I want to circle back. Because you asked me if there were any Cube Rails games I was particularly of note, mm. and then we totally, I, I to totally sidetracked the conversation. Yeah. Um, so, so I do, I, I would like to talk uh, uh, just briefly about some of these. Um, and I guess, again, I should caveat, hey, transparency. Um, I was paid to make videos for Tran Trans-Siberian Railroad as well as Iberian Gage. And I will be paid to make a video for um, Ride the Rails. Um, it's, my, it's what I do for a living. And uh, so, so all those things exist out there in the ether. Mm -hmm. You now know this. But... Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad has been the biggest hit with my friends and probably with me as well. Um, uh, close second is Iberian Gage, um, which is interesting because those are the first two, right? <laughs> right there at the beginning. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the following, we played those on a Monday. The following Monday, we played we played them again. Iberian Gage and Trans-Siberian Railroad in the same night. We had such a good time with it. But um, as far as other ones that really uh, jumped out, uh, Northern Pacific was fascinating. Um, and Erie Railroad was also a really interesting experience. The cube rails, I mean, it's, it, it's just cards. It's just an auction. Um, but it was uh, pretty mind-bending and, and quite fun. Uh, but then again, I also did well in that game, and I could see that game being very frustrating if you don't do very well. Um, but yeah, th those, I think the ones that really stuck out to me were ones where the shared incentives caused a lot of collaboration. Um, that would shift as the game went on and stocks, you know, stock majorities and whatnot would, would transfer a bunch. Um, but uh, the ones that really 
caused conversations, like like semi-cooperative gameplay experiences that didn't make it just seem like it's just me versus you versus you versus you. It's like, well, right now, you know, you and me, we both like yellow. So like, what are we going to do about yellow? And then we like talk about it because we both have two shares. Uh, and then, you know, we're in the next company for Iberia Engage. And now like, you know, you and I are at complete odds because, you know, we're talking about the red company and you don't care about red and I really do. Um, and also, it's specifically in uh, Iberia Engage, um, because every single stock lets you put down a single train, it lets you interweave your um, your portfolio in a way. Like that game is really about connecting cities. Try not to go into the specifics, but like if I'm invested in red and you're invested in red, and I'm also invested in purple, I'm probably going to try to push red towards purple. Yep. And you don't want red to go towards purple, but I do because I'm the only one in purple or something like that. And like purple's kind of dying down there. And like if I can connect it up to red, then I can actually make something happen out of that. Um, and I might actually make red hurt a little bit. Like, oh, red's not going to hit that thing. The stock price is going to go down by two, but that's okay because yeah. it's going to help purple out and you're not happy about that. So I, I really like how all that stuff kind of works together. And Trans-Siberian Railroad has a very similar feel with a lot of the leapfrogging, but then that has the whole metagame of the nationalization, which is, I think, the reason why it's it's a little bit above. And I think, I always say, long story short, and I talk forever, uh, but uh, you know, to put a long story short with all these Cube Rails games, the reason I've I've been so fascinated by them and why I've played 10 and I want to play, you know, at least eight more that I know about is because uh, I, I just want to see the experiences. I want to see the wacky things that can happen. I want to see the strange um, uh, ripple effects of various decisions that people make inside of each of these games. I just feel like they're really interesting short stories um, and and you might play the same game again. And it's like a, it's a different short story in the same framework that um, that just has me coming back again and again um, in, in such a short, small time frame. Um, there have been several evenings where I played three or four of these in one night, and I, I have a brain that craves novelty, and I, my brain loves that. I would much rather play four games in one night than one um, that, that took the same amount of time as those four games. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so you're... Oh, so first of all, we will, I think before the interview portion of the episode, we'll mention that we'll be putting links to your playthroughs. So that way oh, people can maybe follow along with some of the specifics that you've been talking about. Um, you're, you said you had eight more on your list. Yeah. Does that include German Railways by any chance? Uh, ish. I mean, uh, German Railways is essentially a redo of GMNO, right? No. Oh, okay. I thought it was. Uh, um, German, have... German Railways is older, I believe, than GMNO, and I, and they're, I think they're totally different games. Oh, German okay. Railways well, then... is, is the the English name for uh, Österreichs, whatever. It's I... Aust- Austrian Railways. Um, I know the letters, but I cannot pronounce German. I'm words. looking it up because I have not heard of the <laughs> one that you mentioned. Uh, let's see. Well, GMNO is, the, is the rel- relatively newer one from. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it looks Rio like Grand. my research is just a little bit off there. I, I feel like there was another version of GMNO with German in the title. Preussische um, Ostbahn is the name of the other one. It was a, a winsome. Um, and it's, yeah, Queen Games published German rail- railways. Okay, okay. Uh, so, well, it's it's on the list now. I, I thought I thought it was a, a duplicate. but <laughs> So I, uh, I've i only played it a couple times, but it's very different. And you've played more cube rails than I have at this point, but it's very different than any of the other ones that I've played. It's got a, a really interesting mechanism by which you put um, player color cubes. So if I'm blue player, I have blue cubes and you're green, you have green cubes and you have up to five of them. 
uh, for up to a five player game. And you'll have as many as there are players in the game. And you put a number of your cubes into a bag every round based on who has the most cash. So the person with the most cash will get one cube and then two, and three, and the cubes will get pulled out and you take your, you only pull a number of cubes equal to the number of players. So you have more chance of getting actions to take if you're doing worse in the game. Huh. And there that are sounds... times where you'll be in the lead and you won't have any of your cubes pulled out of the bag <laughs> and huh. you'll just sit there for a round and not, not get a turn. And it's, it found it to be really fun. Everybody's laughing about, oh, look at Johnny sitting over there not getting to take any turns for it. It was a it was a really fun experience. I'm not making it sound fun, but <laughs> no, so no, no. awful. No. <laughs> it was great. So uh, two things. Uh thing A, uh to vindicate me, German Rails is a re-implementation of GMNO. There you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> I knew how, how could we um, have gotten this wrong? I, I know, right? Jeez. Uh and thing two, and maybe mm. I should have said this a long time ago. Uh, but as a gamer, I'm primarily mechanics oriented, uh, like a moth to a flame. Um, weird, different mechanics is 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 what I care about in games. Um, the thing that gets me excited about a new Euro game, if it's if it's a bunch of things I've seen before, then I'll be like, yeah, I'll try it. But if it's got like a new take on a rondelle mechanism, I'm like, oh, I have to to see what that is. So you telling me about this weird player catch up cube bag thing, I'm just like, yes. I want to play that. I want to experience that. And actually, that's probably part of the reason I'm liking these Cube Rails games so much. It's just like these short little injections of of new mechanics every single time. So it's just hitting my uh, yeah. my novelty center pretty there's, hard. There's not usually a lot of randomness in these games either. Correct. But uh, this is one of the few Cube Rails games where you're watching cubes come out and everybody's holding their breath, hoping that they get an action. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, I know Eric, Eric plays a lot of Arkham and he, one of, his I think favorite moments in the game is when you're pulling out a token bag, yeah. and you're waiting to see how bad it's going to be or how good those, those big moments occasions. where you yeah you're about <laughs> the you pull the token out and you're like crucial test and you put everything into it and you draw the auto fail and you're like no you know (laughs) and not a lot of cube rails has have those moments but german railways does and i I really appreciate that about that game yeah it's on the list um now there's now there's nine games on that list thanks (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm glad i could make your list longer (laughs) yes um so actually have uh one more question i think we're we're done with uh patron questions Uh, eric and i have been going down the rabbit hole of equipment research and getting new microphones and you recently uh actually i don't know how recent it was uh not recently you at one point put out a video where you kind of shared your process for uh creating playthroughs yeah eric and i are very much still in the process of learning and we modify how we do things we're totally resetting up our live streaming setup we're actually trying to figure out a good you know, camera rail mounting system. And um, we have some people in our in our Patreon that have started making videos. And I was just hoping that maybe you might have something to share with people that are interested in creating content. Based on how sure. to get started or, or uh, yeah. good gear to consider potentially if you want to go down there. Yeah. Um, my primary advice, and I don't want this to sound patronizing, uh, is that uh, you probably have everything you need in your pocket to start. Um, phones are awesome these days, uh, especially these days. Like the phone that I started John Gets Games out on was an iPhone 5, I think. Um, and the the video quality of phones 
you know, in 2021 is significantly different than in 2014. And I, I think a lot of people can be, can feel like, oh, I, I want to make something. I want to make a podcast. I want to make a video, but I have to spend all this money. I have to buy all this stuff. And just like, like I literally just pulled my phone out of my phone out of my pocket, pressed record, came up with a name on the fly and dumped it up onto YouTube. I recorded, I edited for the first year and a half in um, iMovie, which was a free software on that came with my Mac. And um, so, yeah, I spent zero dollars for the first year and a half um, of my YouTube channel um, because I was just using the phone I used every day anyway. And I used a free editing software that came with my computer. Uh, I, I think I think the biggest the biggest thing is to figure out if you want to do it and why spend a bunch of money to realize you don't actually like doing this. Uh, that's one thing I've picked up over the years of me doing this and also seeing a lot of other people start and then stop. Um, I, I don't want this to be like survivor bias or anything, but <laughs> when I first started this YouTube channel, I was very aware of like a bunch of other people who were starting their channels around the same time I did. Uh, I had 90 subscribers and that person has 500 subscribers. And I'd be like, how the heck did they get to 500? And, you know, you just, you know, you, you pay attention a lot to your peers and essentially all of those people aren't making videos anymore for one reason or another. Um, and that's fine. And I just hope that those people didn't spend a bunch of money on equipment that they're not using anymore. So, so that's why I feel like starting with the thing that you have to just try it, just feel out. How do you like your voice on camera? Do you actually like doing this? Is it stressing you out? If you're super stressed out, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. And I think a lot of people can get very stressed out by these things. And it would really suck to be like, I don't actually like this. And I dropped $800 in equipment that I'm now not using. So I think uh, the, the second thing is to just grow naturally, like not be like, okay, I've been doing this for two months and I like it. Time to spend $2,000. Uh, for me, it was just very slowly. Um, first, I got some lights. And then a year later, I bought a blue Yeti. And then, you know, a year after that, um, I, when I finally invested in this camera that I use, it was $1,200. And I had been making videos for almost for three years. I think about three years at that point. Um, and there was a lot of money. Uh, but I was just about to start charging money for my videos and I've been doing it for three years. So it just seemed like it made a lot more sense. Um, I used my, I used my personal phone for years. Uh, I had thousands of subscribers and still was using my personal phone and that was just fine. Um, so that was not a short answer to your question, but, um, you use what you got. Oh, but that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we didn't want it to be I mean, sure. That's, that's great stuff. <laughs> I think I, I, yeah, I feel you. That is, that's, uh. <laughs> Good advice that people should should live by. And it's hard to follow for um, people like Eric and I that just like stuff. I mean, yeah. stuff is fun. You know, it's it's, <laughs> yes. it's fun to experiment and learn. This process has been really like um, the, the last I don't know five weeks. I have been nothing. I've, I haven't been thinking about. I've been distracted at work sometimes, like thinking about like uh, these microphones and does that work with this preamp and all this stuff. Because we specifically the audio in this case we're we're, we're looking to do yeah um, and it's been fun to dive into that but it's also been uh, overwhelming for sure and I actually have a pretty decent I would like to think anyway I have a pretty decent base and understanding of of how all this stuff works not all this stuff but just um, you know uh, some of this stuff can be a little sales gimmicky and and um, there's a lot of options and most of them will work fine like I'm aware of that you know uh, yeah. like you said. Your, your phone does a good enough job, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's fun to chase. Especially these days. Yeah. 
But yeah. I do want well, to say Eric, one you, other you thing. You love to reference that um, that video that a, a guy treated his yeah. This is a guy his room or closet with um, not not moving blankets, but they're similar. They're made for sound yeah. um, dampening, and recorded a video with his cell phone and a, on a little shock mount, and it sounded like. Uh, you know, $500 microphone. Uh, Mike Delgadio of Booth Junkie. And he is a professional voice actor, which helps him. He comes in, he's like, this is Mike Delgadio. You know, he sounds great. Um, but uh, th- yeah, that was, that was eye opening. It was like, oh my God. Like, you know, in yeah. this case, he's, he's all about that. Like tr- sound treatment is what matters. I'm in my yeah. relatively bare basement back here and I'm aware that we could do better. Johnny soon will have a curtain behind him. You can't see it on the podcast, but he's sitting in front of some bare uh, well, some insulated uh, two by fours now because we put those up the other day, but um, we're working on that kind of stuff. But it's fun to explore. Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, I was actually thinking I would just leave it like this, and my wife like hates that idea. I was like, I'd rather not spend the $200 it's going to cost me to put curtain rods and curtains up. And she was like, but it looks so bad. <laughs> <laughs> You should get some of those sweet... Uh, and she doesn't spend any time in here. John, you got any more of those wooden things behind you left lying around? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, yeah, you should totally do that. Other people won't see it, but you will. And you exist in there. I'm sure it'll, it'll, it'll affect you. Um, yeah. the, the, the one other tiny thing I want to say is that um, when you're making stuff, like really anything, especially if you're not ma- making any money off of it, is uh, don't be scared to stop. Uh, I think a lot of people... And to, to, to experiment. And to stop, um, because I think a lot of people get wrapped up in what they've done, and they think they have to keep doing that, and it can be a self stressor. Uh, John Gets Game started out being purely reviews, and I, four years in, I stopped making reviews entirely because they were stressing me out, and I didn't like them very much. Um, and you know, I'm I'm now where I am today because I experimented with a bunch of things and stopped doing a bunch of things and started doing other things. And I think a lot of people can be constrained by what they have done. I think that that is what they are, who they are, and therefore what they have to do in the future. And again, especially if you're not making money, it's not putting food on your table. Like, do whatever, man. Try, try, just experiment and and feel free to say goodbye to your failures. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Cool. All right. Well, I, I guess uh, with that, we'll let you get back to your busy schedule of, uh, you have some, <laughs> some some game set up in your table down there. Yeah. Know. Yeah. That's, that's tomorrow. That's me going to work tomorrow. Cool. Well, thanks <laughs> another, for, another game to teach. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. I um, re- appreciate what you do for the hobby, the, the effort that you put in and, and people, um, you know, on a similar caliber as you makes, it makes this hobby. Right. I mean, like, especially this year of COVID people being able to interact or see other stuff online has been huge. So, um, you know, just some gratitude from us. We appreciate what you do and <laughs> yeah, did uh, no we'd love to catch a game with you sometime. <laughs> if you have, if you have time, uh, I think we can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks guys. All right. Bye John. All right. Thanks. Take care. All right. All right. And we're back. Uh, let's move on to, pay or withhold dividends. Eric, what are we doing? We are going to, our next stream is going to be a two-player only stream of 18 OE uh, short scenario. Johnny's got a, is it, there's not, there's more than one short scenario, right? Yeah, there, I, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure there are several short and uh, medium length scenarios, but I, I don't know how many or what they're called. Cool. So we're going to, we're going to pick one of those out. Neither of us have played that game before. Johnny's had a copy for a long time. And 
And it's stickered. It's out of the shrink wrap and stickered, which is unusual for games on my shelf. That's right. Yeah, you, I remember you saying how painful the stickering on that one was, or oh, how long it there's, took. There's a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna try and stream that thing. Hopefully, the camera can capture it all. I guess on this this the short scenario, it's probably just a subset of the map. I, I think it's half. So the map is in two parts, and I think it just uses half of the map. Cool. We're gonna. Stream that, so look out for details on that. We're, we'll we'll try and give some notice, I guess, a couple of days before, hopefully. Yeah, we'll post it up on Twitter and places. Facebook and all the places. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, new episode listener question time is now. And uh, I guess that's... Johnny put this question together, so why don't, you, why don't you ask it, Johnny? I was just thinking now that we're starting to you know all of us uh in our local group have now had our vaccines at least scheduled some are already starting to get them and uh nationwide uh actually worldwide the people are starting to get vaccinated and people are starting to or preparing to start doing their weekly game groups again and i was curious when we do get back to that you know what are your gaming goals are you going to try to play a certain you know whether it's play a certain number of a particular title or of 18xx games or maybe there's a game that you've had sitting on your shelf for 15 months that you want that to be the top priority to get to the table so just basically what are you looking forward to doing first or most when we get back to live gaming yeah uh, that was actually my news that i was elusive about that i was like oh i'll get to it when we do the news uh was that i got my first vaccine shot Yay! yay. Um. So that's, that's exciting. And it was uneventful for me. So that's good. Yeah, I am in, I'm scheduled for my first shot in a week, a week from tomorrow. Nice. And I know Len is already vaccinated. So we're already talking about once you get your second shot doing a, hopefully a face-to-face game. Yeah. Three-player game. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So let's move on to buying trains. That's where we do our train fact. And uh, we're going to start right there. Hey, everybody. This is Eric. I am here re-recording the train fact again because I did it without notes with Johnny. And I was very unhappy with the way that it came out. I, I apparently can't remember history and dates and times and tell a cohesive story all on the fly, which I'm very disappointed with myself with. So. Instead, I decided to go through what I had learned and actually try and make some notes and and do it with you now here. So I'm inserting this into the episode after the fact. I'm also getting to do it on my brand new microphone. So if I sound any different, that's why I'm very excited about it. It's a big deal for me. So previously on Train Shuffling, we had walked through George Pullman's history through boyhood, moving buildings, raising them up and then moving to Chicago and moving entire blocks. And we sort of left off there. So Pullman, now established in Chicago, became interested in making rail travel more comfortable for passengers. So he started a business partnership with this guy named Benjamin Field, who was a former New York state senator, and the two of them started into business together. Pullman persuaded the Chicago, Alton, and St. Louis Railroad to allow them to convert two cars to sleepers. These Pullman sleepers were introduced in 1859 and were an immediate success. They included high-class restaurants, elegant sleeping compartments, 
and actually had accordioned connectors between the cars to reduce wind and noise. Pullman actually leased his cars rather than selling them, and which was a big part of why he was so successful in business. And he received a cut of every ticket sold. In most cases, I think in, in by the end, or I'm not sure if this was constant or not, but he would make more than like 50% profit on tickets. So in 1859, Pullman actually relocated to Colorado because he was following the gold rush, and he opened a business there that catered to gold miners. Uh, it was called Cold Spring Ranch, and it was in Central City. It basically was food, lodging, and supplies for, for miners. And he had a, a number of other businesses out there. Um, I think he had some banking uh, businesses going on. In the 1860s, he moved back to Chicago, and this was mind-blowing to me, but it probably is nothing new. Like most wealthy men of the time, he actually hired a replacement to serve for him during the Civil War. I think I might have mentioned this on the previous part of the podcast, the the previous fact, Uh, but he just paid someone to go be in war for him. Who knew? That's a job you can do. Um, He continued working on developing new sleeper cars, and in 1865, the Pioneer was introduced. The Pioneer was crazy. Um, This is something from ClassicChicagoMagazine.com, and I'm going to read you a little excerpt here. Even by the most elaborate Victorian standards, Pioneer, Pullman's prototype sleeping car, was sumptuous. Outfitted with a black walnut interior, thick carpeting, plush upholstery, velvet curtains, elegant chandeliers, and ceiling murals. He had finally achieved his dream of fine hotel luxury on wheels. In pushing the limits of lux, the willful Pullman had knowingly exceeded the height and width specifications of ordinary rail cars. Therefore, in order to use his car, railroad companies would have to widen bridges, cut back station platforms, and even raise some viaducts. It was like immediately newsworthy, though, and it actually got a lot of attention. And he kind of cut a weird, dark, lucky break when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and Pullman managed to include several of the pioneer cars that he had on the train that moved Lincoln's body back to Springfield, Illinois. That trip actually inspired Andrew Carnegie to invest in Pullman's business. And yes, it is Carnegie, not Carnegie. If you haven't seen pictures of the insides of one of these cars, I recommend you do. It's, they're ridiculous. (laughs) They're like extremely over overdone with luxury like the the look of luxury the car that brought lincoln around stopped in towns it was kind of a slow travel across the nation and it, it was a huge uh publicity win for for pullman and basically overnight like everybody wanted to be riding on one of these cars at least that's the that's the impression you get hearing about the history so the railroads were sort of forced into making these adjustments and and being able to handle his sleeping cars. And for an additional $2, you could ride in an elegant green luxury Pioneer car. So let's fast forward to 1880, when Pullman's been successful for quite some time, and he decides that he wants to build his own town for housing for his workers. He wants to be able to control basically all the aspects of their lives. Um, He doesn't want there to be opportunities for his workers to get drunk and have get you know get arrested and stuff so he buys 3000 acres around 
Lake Calumet, which is a few miles south of Chicago. And he builds Pullman, Illinois. He controlled every aspect of the town. He bans alcohol, uh, controls newspapers, town meetings, bans private organizations, and controls the rents, including building commodity buildings and things like a town church, which was the rent on the town church. It was supposed to be multi-denominational, but it was too expensive for any one denomination to afford, so it stood empty for like three years. So a lot of this stuff was just sort of for show, um, so that his town was perfect. I uh, came across a quote that was from one of his employees that said, we are born in a Pullman house, fed from the Pullman shops, taught in the Pullman school, catechized in the Pullman church, and when we die, we shall go to the Pullman hell, which I thought was poetic. So he builds this town, gets his employees to move in there, charges rent, controls their, their wages. Then comes the Panic of 1893, which had many contributing factors and is an entire separate podcast, I think, about, about that. So the broad strokes that make up what happened, as far as I understand, one is that European investors got spooked by problems in Argentina, South Africa, and Australia and started a run on gold. I, so problems, I'm just going to gloss over what those problems were because I'm, I'm relatively ignorant on, on those causes. There was some investments that went bad, I think. And a coup? I think there was a coup. Not important. <laughs> uh, so they started a, a run on gold in the U.S. Treasury. And everyone had been watching the gold reserves and saying, hey, if it drops below $100 million of gold reserve, then that's scary. And it spooked people, and it caused a run on a gold in the U.S. Treasury. Um, there was also a railroad bubble in the 1870s to 1880s, where there was like tons of overinvestment in railroads, which is thematic to the games that we like to play. They, people were investing like crazy. Railroads were overdeveloped and overinvested in, and the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad went into receivership, and that was that was a big contributing factor as well. I think that people kind of saw that railroads could fail. And so the stock market plummeted and there were bank runs and general financial panic happened and lots of ripple effect. So that was the panic of 1893. Because of that, there was a general economic depression and Pullman laid off hundreds of workers and switched many more to pay per piece work, which actually reduced the overall amount of money that somebody would make. However, he did not reduce rent in Pullman, Illinois, but he kept manager salaries high and continued to pay full dividends to shareholders because he wanted to keep them happy. Um, employees in many cases had to feed their families on a few cents per week, which is crazy and terrifying as a, a father of two. So the employees were very unhappy, uh, and this is the point in the story where Eugene V. Debs is going to enter, and this is where I'm going to leave the train fact for this episode, and we're going to talk about Eugene Debs, who was a labor organizer uh, who was born in none other than Terre Haute, Indiana. And we're all familiar with Terre Haute, Indiana, because we've all played 1846, and it's that $10 city that the ick has to deal with when it's trying to get out of there and it can't upgrade. It's a teeny tiny little place. Anyway, he had recently formed the ARU, the American Railway 
Union, and it was a, a kind of the first of its kind thing. And we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about that on the next episode of Train Shuffling. A thank you. <laughs>